Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina. Because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it starts now. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina Tuesday morning, March the 8th, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Cato. Morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. What's the latest on the baseball um, situation? It's not a strike, right? It's a, it's lockout. a lockout. Yeah, the owners locked out the players. So and, what is the latest? Well, I, I mean, is, I, there any, is there any um, last-minute revelations as to what may or may not happen as we get ever closer to the opening day? What normally would be the opening day? Of the baseball season. I read yesterday they met face-to-face. It wasn't yesterday. They met Sunday face-to-face. And both sides, I think, came out using the word deadlocked, Mm -hmm. which is not good. Um, Billionaires arguing with millionaires. Exactly. Never a good thing. Exactly. Uh, Now, I did read an update that they had some Zoom meetings yesterday, and they did have some movement on, I think, on the... I don't know which side moved a little what on is one the of the issues. Point? What is the major issue? Well, it's the uh, with the luxury tax. The CBT um, is a big issue. I think they pretty much are very, very close on minimum salary. And there's one more issue. Money. I mean, it's always it's, money. It's, yeah, okay. there's a few other things in there. And I think they actually agree. It's not like whether a, Rawlings or Wilson get to furnish the baseballs no, or not. No. And, and whether the, okay, I mean, it's not like, um, can we use a short fielder or not like in softball? But I think they're softball? talking about making the bases larger. They're talking about a pitcher's clock and some other items that the owners want that the players are now agreeing to. Um, but it, it'll end up being about the money. Charles Barkley famously said, it's not about the money, it's about how much, how much money. money. <laughs> and um, that's where we'll end up. Um, now, I heard that they, what they did is, uh, I guess, Major League Baseball came out and set another deadline for today. They said if they get an agreement by five o'clock today then they will play all 162 games even though they've already pushed back the first two series of the regular season okay they'll just make it up somewhere else that's, on the back end of the season that's what i presume okay and uh, that's all I, I really know at this point i don't have any feel for whether it's close or not or but not. we're an affiliate of the atlanta braves and they've not right. led you to believe that they know any more than you do they we haven't heard a word i mean other than just the normal preseason stuff well before uh I mean, way, way back. Yeah, I guess even before the lockout might okay. have been the last time we heard from them on that when they just lined things up for this season. So we're sitting on ready. Remember a while back, we talked about some of the fast, some, some of the states people are migrating to and some of the out-migration, you know, leaving New York, leaving California, leaving Illinois in record numbers, moving to Florida, the Carolinas. Uh, what was another fast? Remember Idaho? And we were like scratching our head, Idaho? <laughs> The world's going on in Idaho. I know now what's going on in Idaho. It's not potatoes. Idaho activated its real, I mean, every state has a realtors association. I mean, you got the National Realtors Federation, and then you've got the state uh, entities within the national organization. The state of Idaho, this is so interesting to me. And this is kind of, um, it's it's thinking out of the box, but it's more than that. I mean, it's, um, it's winning in capitalism. So when you, when you see citizens move from New York, New Jersey, Illinois, um, you believe they're, well, there they're, they're, they're are multiple reasons they're moving. A lot of folks down to the Myrtle Beach Chamber of Commerce, when, when I ran for lieutenant governor, I got to be real good friends with Brad Dean, 
who was the president of the Myrtle Beach Chamber of Commerce, and Brad and I would have uh, these discussions about trends and, you know, the sentiment of the public and all these other sorts of things. Brad's the one that came up with the visit MyrtleBeach.com. Oh, I mean, that was kind okay. of his brainchild, the TDF, yeah, the that's a good development <laughs> fee. Um, yeah, I mean, he, you know, Brad was a real creative thinker, a really bright guy. Actually took a job in Puerto Rico as the national director of tourism after the hurricane um, destroyed Puerto Rico. Brad married a lady from Puerto Rico, so it was near dear to his heart. He went down to Puerto Rico, still there, um, left the chamber as its uh, executive vice. No, nah, I think he was the president. He was the president, and then they had a chamber board. Anyway. Um, Brad and I would talk about trends and why people are moving, where they're moving. Idaho was surprising until I read this article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago, and I went back and read it last night again. Idaho came up with a uh, kind of a marketing brand called Politically Motivated Relocation. The name of the uh, the movement was Move Red. The, the name of the um, the effort would be a better way to describe was Move Red. And they targeted people who were visibly frustrated by living in blue states, high taxes, onerous governments. Uh, I would imagine the weather. I mean, you don't move to Idaho for the weather, do you? <laughs> I mean, Idaho's not Florida. It's not the Carolinas. I mean, if you've lived all of your life in New Jersey and you shovel snow, you know, half the year, I mean, it stands to reason you're tired of that. You've got a little bit more financially liberated and you say, hey, are you ready to get out of here? I mean, it's been a good run. We've had a good go of it. I don't hate New Jersey. I don't hate New York. But there's this place called South Carolina. There's this place called Florida where the average temperature is 78 degrees. You know, let's sell our house up here and move down there. I can work a couple of days at Walmart. You can work a couple of days at Target. I can play golf two days a week, and you can sit on the beach two days a week. Um, I can fish a little. and I mean, we're not wealthy, but we're not broke. You know, I've got a pension. I've got a retirement. we got some social security. Um, we sell our house. There's kind of a um, a windfall that goes along with that because a lot of people are moving to the beach now not buying. They're renting. They're, they're keeping that money. In other words, if you sell your house, especially now with the crazy real estate market, if you sell your house for $500,000, dollars $700,000, they're not reinvesting that money because there is no capital gains on a primary residence. So they're holding on to the six dollars or $700,000, and they're coming to the beach, so to speak, and they're renting. Well, Idaho said, we can't give good weather. We can't give the beach. How many people want to grow potatoes? But they, they identified via social media. They created this, um, I don't know, this strategy, this grand strategy. And it was called Politically Motivated Relocations. They named theirs Move Red slash Flee the City. And it was conducted by the, the Idaho Realtors Association, and they hired a company to go through all of these social media sites, Facebook posts, um, Twitter, uh, what do you call it, posts? Is it Twitter? I mean, it would be a Tweets. tweet. Yeah, tweet, Facebook post. And those people who appear to be very disgruntled by the high taxes and the onerous mask mandates. I mean, they, I, I would imagine, Rev, they hired some technology company, and anybody in New York, New, York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, wherever, um, that had, you know, negative things about the mask mandate or the vaccine mandate, they would, you know how we do this um, geofencing and this, um, we believe our phones are listening to us. Well, I mean, there are companies contracted to, to kind of, you know, gather information, some of this metadata, <coughs> excuse me, and out of that came um, an identifying of people who were, you know, argue, I mean, just obviously frustrated to be living in these places, and they pitched certain cities in Idaho. 
And it worked to the point that for five consecutive years, Idaho has grown faster per capita than Florida. I mean, the overall population has not grown as fast as Florida or the Carolinas for that matter, but per capita, it is growing faster than Florida or the Carolinas. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, when you really read into this, it was a, um, it was kind of an all hands on deck. Some uh, marketing guru from Idaho sat down with the Realtors Association and said, hey, have we ever thought about strategically targeting some of these people who appear to be, and the mask mandate was the primary feature of this. It was not the vaccine mandate. It's not high taxes. It's not bad weather. They basically identified people who were visibly, and I'm talking about visibly via the internet, visibly upset at the mask mandate. And they would send a kind of a message. Hey, in Idaho, we don't have mask mandates. In Idaho, we don't have vaccine mandates. You know what the taxes are on a $350,000 house in Idaho? I mean, I don't. I'm just saying those are the sorts of messages that were sent out strategically targeted to these people who have um, demonstrated their discontent with living in some of these cities. So when we looked at the list, and I just remember us having a camera like, the world's going on in Idaho. <laughs> I mean, is there some, you, you know. figured it out. Yeah, is there a potato boom going on that we don't know about? No, there's not. But there was. A, a politically motivated relocation strategy employed by the Idaho Realtors Association um, designated as Move Red slash Flee the City. And it's working. And people are moving to Idaho in record numbers. Their population growth is about 3.5% annually. That's a pretty substantial growth in population year to year. You have to think they're probably getting a lot of people from Washington and Oregon. Too, I would imagine right next door. It's, it's West Coast and East Coast. Um, I mean, they'll take you wherever you come from, but it's move red, flee the city, and it's a um, it's kind of an all hands on deck effort by the people of Idaho. Here's the problem: the people of Idaho are saying, "Whoa, <laughs> that's enough. That's about enough." Um, we're, we're thankful for sharing the tax burden. We're thankful for. Uh, some of the organic growth, but that's about enough New Yorkers living in Idaho. That's about enough of this, Um, you know, excuse my French, it's real early, right? The kids aren't up yet. This effing this and effing that <laughs> in Idaho. <laughs> you, know, you know, we went 40 years and never heard that word. Now I hear it everywhere I turn. So let's, you know, let's pump the brakes on this move red, flee the city, politically motivated um, relocation. Um, that That is, guys, isn't that America? I mean, isn't that the, the, the sentiment of America? It, it's a capital market, creativity, entrepreneurship, um, innovation. Right. I, Idaho, Democrats bad. Well, I mean, th- there's an organization in, in Idaho run by the Democrats, and they're saying, we're getting a bunch of neo-Nazis. Of course. We're, we're getting a bunch of these um, white Aryans. I mean, they, these, aren't, these aren't people moving here to, to find a simpler way of life and not have to be you know, forced to wear a mask or a vaccine or high taxes. These are white Aryans. They're neo-Nazis. We'll get exactly what we deserve. That There's some organization in, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the city in Idaho. Uh, it, it's a more liberal city. It's where the University of Idaho is. We know the majority of cities that have a university tend to be um, more liberal than the state on average. Um, they tell me that Colorado, outside of Boulder, is nowhere near as liberal. I mean, I, you know, when you hear Colorado today, you hear liberal. I mean, marijuana and, you know, all these other sorts of things. But a lot of that is driven by Boulder, Colorado. With Denver, Denver's a big city. 
So you got those two population centers. One is um is urban in nature. The other is university dominated. And a lot of the politics are directed from Denver and Boulder. But if you get outside, I mean, I, I, you, I think we could all imagine, if you get outside of Denver or Boulder, you, you probably think you're in South Carolina. I mean, I got to believe. I mean, it's colder and more mountainous, of course. But uh, but anyway, that's what's happening in Idaho. Mm. And I just remember uh, a couple of months ago, we went through this. The growth of South Carolina is what we were talking about. And the congressional districts and you know, all these other things that go into some of this content that we debate on this show. Um I want to spend some time this morning because I, I don't think we've done a good job of this. It's Tuesday morning. We are, what, a couple of weeks into the war? Russia, yeah, Ukraine. 13 days. Um, you know, we were told uh, a week or so ago, this thing's not going as Putin planned. I don't know that I buy that anymore. I mean, th- there, was a, there was kind of an emotional moment in all of this. When the Ukrainians stood and fought, we, we kind of got caught up in ourselves. Wow. The Ukrainians aren't bailing. They're standing and fighting. The Russian artillery is not as effective as we imagined it would be. The um, the invasion is stalling. The 30-mile caravan, they're out of fuel. They're not motivated to fight. I, I just, I don't buy that. I saw a poll last night in Reuters. Um, 74% of Americans over the weekend were, were asked, do you or do you not support a NATO, a NATO-endorsed no-fly zone? 74% of Americans said yes. That makes no sense because a enforcement of a no-fly zone engages America in a way that we end up at war. Basically war, yeah. I mean, we end up at war. I mean, there is no doubt about it. So you're telling me that three of four Americans in a war-weary country would support us enforcing as a member of NATO, and we know where the, um, we, we know where the buck would stop, right? It wouldn't be at France's doorsteps or Italy's or Germany's. It would be at America's doorstep. I mean, if, if, if NATO voted to enforce a no-fly zone, everybody would be like an owl on a roost. Their heads would turn around and say, okay, America, this is your baby. Have at it. We've all voted for it, but you know how NATO works. We'll vote for it. Damn, we're going to do it. So have at it, good old U.S. of A. I mean, you've got the missiles, you've got the bullets, you've got the guns, you've got the artillery, you've got the advancements in technology that have led um, yourselves to be the you know the greatest fighting machine in the history of mankind. We've all endorsed via a vote a NATO no-fly zone. You go uh, put it in action. And the next thing you know, we are at war on foreign soil, Ukraine in particular, with uh, you know a, a very substantial army. And I just, that, that concerns me. So, so I'm, I begin to say, okay, the American people argue, we do hear that we're war weary. Why would 74% of Americans endorse a no-fly zone? Because the media is misleading you. The media is leading you to believe. And here's where something's up. I sound like Breeze here early on a Tuesday morning. The media, there are 30-some-odd million cell phones in Ukraine. How many cell phone videos have you seen from Ukraine? I mean, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist on this because I think the people of Ukraine have stood in fault and it's honorable what they have done, but I'm not buying any longer. I kind of fell for it for a few days, but I'm not buying this any longer. I'm not buying that. I mean, there's something out there we're not being told. Um, Ukraine is not a bastion of diplomacy. Ukraine is not a beacon of freedoms and liberties. Ukraine is a an Eastern European country that has tried to re-identify as a nation separate of Russia. 
I mean, they, they have to some degree, Reb, embraced Western values, Western culture, but it's still Ukraine. It's still Eastern Europe. And there are 30 some odd million cell phones in Ukraine. How many, how much cell phone footage have you seen come out of Ukraine? That is odd. I mean, I, I, I hate to go down this road, guys, but, but something doesn't add up here. Something just doesn't make any sense. And 74% of Americans, and here's what I think has happened. The 74% of Americans that have seen for about a week these Ukrainians digging in and fighting with everything they've got, we're, we're emotional creatures. We're not Vulcans. How many times have we said that? And all of a sudden, three in every four Americans believe that we need to be, I mean, the, the next step is boots on the ground. I mean, if you vote to enforce a no-fly zone, you have, in essence, declared war on one of the most powerful militaries in the world. I don't want any part of that. I don't want any part of that. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Rev asked during the break, so what is the motivation? I don't know the motivation. Remember the scenes like during a hurricane or, or just before a hurricane hits land and there's a Weather Channel reporter and he can hardly stand up or she can hardly stand up. They've got their L.L. Bean you know, sweater vest on and the wind is, I mean, the, the, the rain jacket, the wind. I mean, they're fighting the wind with everything. And then all of a sudden somebody walks behind them, you know, eating a, a honey bun and a, and a Diet Pepsi. And you're right. like, wow, okay. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen the video Rev said he has. I've seen it. There's a video um, out where, you know, there are apparent Ukrainians dead under bags. They've got them covered up and the wind blows one of the bags off and the Ukrainian reaches up and grabs the bag and pulls it back down over him. <laughs> I've seen and it, it just reminded me of the Weather Channel. And I'm not arguing that there's not an attack on Ukraine. I'm not saying that America should not be aware. I, you know, is there a disruption in the oil? So I don't, I don't. Here's what I do know. The American government's not to be trusted. Whether a Democrat's in charge or a Republican are in charge, the, the American government has ulterior motives. They have an agenda. They always have had an agenda. And some of this, I believe, is driven by the military-industrial complex that they have enormous funds to create narratives that are true or are not true. Doesn't matter to them. They're not in pursuit of the truth. And when I see this number, 74%, this is a Reuters poll. Reuters normally does a pretty decent job of, of measuring public sentiment. The Reuters poll says 74% of Americans support a NATO-endorsed no-fly zone. Americans will carry out that no-fly zone. That means 74% of Americans have been so moved by the Ukrainian actions that their emotions have led them to not be as war-weary as they have been before we saw the Ukrainians fight. And I just started thinking about, okay, what about that doesn't make sense? Well, I mean, a lot about that doesn't make sense. And then I think about 30 million Ukrainians have telephones, have cell phones with cameras. How many, I mean, I'll ask Cato. Cato, how many um, videos have you seen on the, on the internet or over the airwaves that has been a, a Ukrainian cell phone of some sort of bombardment? I mean, I've seen one or two. Well, I can't think of any person. I, mean, I think I've seen one. There, there's an explosion that goes off near. Look, I'm not arguing that there aren't explosions. I'm not saying there isn't an invasion. I'm not saying that, that Putin shouldn't be dealt with in some way, shape, or form. I'm just very skeptical today about what I thought was true for the past week. Something about today leads me. Yesterday and today, I began kind of digging into this in a different sort of way. Something leads me to believe we're not being told the entire story. And you asked earlier, what is the motivation? I don't know the motivation. 
I mean, I'm not a geopolitical expert. I'm not an international affairs. I don't understand that at the the 4D level. Some of these some of these people do. But I'm becoming to be less trustworthy of the storyline that I'm being told that just. And when I saw this Ukrainian, I mean, we were led to believe these are dead people in the streets, covered up with body bags or covered up with plastic tarps. The plastic tarp blows off. The the dead Ukrainian miraculously reaches up grabs the tarp, pulls it back down on him, and it just, that was the weather, the, I don't know, that was the Weather Channel moment for me. And I just started scratching my head. Uh, I don't know. I, I just, but the number 74% of Americans who now endorse uh, being part of a no-fly zone, they have been moved by this storyline. I mean, I'm convinced of that. The storyline of big, bad, bullying Russia invading a sovereign, Western-aspiring nation, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine is still a corrupt nation. I mean, it's unbelievably corrupt, and we're all of a sudden going to invest, you know, American military assets to the tune of enforcing a no-fly zone? No, no, <laughs> no, we can't, we cannot fall for that. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington joins us now. Hello, Sam. Hey, good morning, uh, Kim and Dave. Look, Ken, I'm really glad you brought this up this morning about the the war propaganda feeling of of the news we've got i I use the word news loosely Uh, the people of ukraine are suffering but and to some extent the um the people of america who have to buy gas are suffering but the military industrial mainstream media political complex is doing very well in all this and uh, um Last night, I listened to Tucker Carlson and uh, tuned him in, and that was an absolute jewel. And he said out loud what I've been thinking somebody, I wish somebody could say out loud, uh, the the pro-war Republican politicians and the pro-war Democratic politicians ought to be ashamed of themselves. Uh, They are going right along with this, with this, um, wave of propaganda that that wants to shout down any dissent and and get everybody on board with this thing and i've been feeling that for some time and thank goodness somebody that has a a media platform is saying it and and i would include you in that so thank you sam appreciate that you know i watched tucker last night specifically and look some republicans are going to have to die on this hill I mean, you know, Tucker's been, I mean, I've heard Bill O'Reilly attack Tucker. I've heard Lindsey Graham attack Tucker. I've heard a, uh, you know, multiple other influential media slash political um, officials attack Tucker Carlson, but he's not wavered. I mean, Tucker believes that we are, a lot of our political problems in America today are because the narratives are driven by the American war machine. I mean, he, he sincerely believes that. And, um, and I've gone on the record for well, probably 10 years, Rev, since I've been on the air with this feeble attempt at radio brilliance. I am a non-interventionist. I mean, I don't think I'm a dub because I'm not afraid to defend American property or prosperity or American lot and, you know, life. And, and I think we, we, we have to be respected around the world. But I believe a lot of what has been ginned up over the last week or so, uh, once again, I'm like Sam, has Russia invaded Ukraine? Yes. Is that an international affair that America has to be aware of and 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 obligated to pay? Yes, I mean all of that is true, but but what is our obligation? And when I read this poll, 
And this is what matters to me. When I read that 74% of Americans would now support American involvement in enforcing a NATO fly zone, you've been hoodwinked. I mean, you, you've been made to believe that the Ukrainians um, deserve our support. That they, okay, they deserve our prayer. And, and if we're going to support in some way, shape, or form with military um, equipment or, you know, I, I read over the weekend that we were issuing Poland an upgraded um, missile and Poland is giving the Ukrainians the missile that we previously gave Poland. I mean, we're supplying the world, everybody but Eastern Europe, we're supplying the world with military fighting equipment. I mean, some of these countries invest. Uh, a lot don't. Remember when um, a, a week or so ago the, the president of Ukraine reached out to Israel and asked for some assistance, and Israel said, no. I mean, we're holding on to our own. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of the Middle East. Um, we're, we're the Jewish state in the middle of Muslim land. Uh, thank you, but no thank you. We'll hold on to our fighting equipment uh, in case we happen to need this. There's an MMA fighter, um, and we can't play it over the air because in typical MMA fashion, he drops a few pleasantries um, here and there. But he basically says, and his, Tucker had him on last night. Yeah, or he, Tucker played he the played clip it. last night. Tucker said, hey, the guy may have bad grammar, but he's nobody's fool. He basically said, if something happens in Arkansas, I'll dig in. And I'll defend with every ounce of blood in my body the people I love, the country I love, the way of life that I love. But I don't know what's going on in Ukraine. And, and to, to, to send American men and women to Ukraine to, to enforce a no-fly zone in Ukraine? Because, guys, if we enforce a NATO-commanded no-fly zone, we are at war. I mean, we are all of a sudden a nation at war. And for the life of me, 74% of Americans believe that's in our best interest. That's we being gullible again. That's our emotions getting the best of us. Stop with that. Don't trust these leaders to tell you the truth of what's happening in Ukraine. Is Putin a dictator, a ruthless killing dictator? Yes. What is Ukraine? I don't know. Maybe that's the best analogy I can give. I think we know what Russia is. Do we all of a sudden think we know what Ukraine is? Really? Pump the brakes, guys. Let's go to the phone. Barry in Chirag. Morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, uh, you know, what What did the bells for me last week is when all the pronouns and, you know, all those crazy people that start putting all that stuff in their Twitter feeds, or you know, they're putting the flags, and then the media's telling you, then the Democrats are telling you, then the rhino Republicans are telling you. That should be a red flag. Uh, I mean, that should be a red flag right off the bat after three years of what we've been through or eight years of what we've been through. So it's just it, it's crazy. We're not talking about COVID. We're not talking about the border. We're not talking about anything happening here. They're crushing our economy. What's that? The, the Democrats love that. I mean, I hate to say it, but they, they love that the economy is getting crushed. The gas prices are going up. So I, I think you're right. I mean, I think everybody's coming on board now. Uh, something's going on, and I said it last week, and I'll say it again. It just doesn't make sense. They want us in a war. That that's just not making sense. Is the economic uh, world, uh, you know, Klaus Schwab? Is he is he doing this? Is this a puppet play? Because I don't think the president of Ukraine. I think he's in it. I think he's in it. But you know, we can't prove that, Ken. But uh, man, it's just frustrating. But we're we're not talking about COVID. We're not talking about the exposure. A Moderna with the DNA inside the vaccine. 
three years before it gets let out. We're not talking about any of that. We're just talking about Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Southern border's wide open. Thousands are dying of fentanyl, and we're not talking about any of it. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate it. And I, I, I think I understand and am somewhat versed about Russia. I mean, I've never been to Moscow, but, but I, th- there's some history there, that there's a track record there, that there's a, uh, an awareness that we as political consumers have of Russia. I mean, I don't know every intricate detail of the Kremlin or the former Kremlin. I don't understand how Putin governs, but, but I've got an idea. And all of a sudden, in two weeks' time, I'm supposed to support a no-fly zone that may or may not involve my sovereign nation in a border dispute between Ukraine and Russia that has a history and culture that, that far outlives you know, the existence of my nation. No. And when I see the number, 74%, that, that number scared me. It freaked me out. It astounded me that three or four Americans have gotten in a week and a half to a place of believing they know enough about Ukraine to commit that sort of military effort. That's, 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 it's, it's confusing. It's, well, it's not confusing. It's discouraging. And we got to be careful here. I mean, we, we got to be very, very careful and measured because those trying to drive this narrative, I mean, they're succeeding. I mean, they're absolutely succeeding and never underestimate the effect or influence or willingness for the American military industrial complex to try and move the meter. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. Listen, guys, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm not. I'm building a lot of stuff. All I do is look at it from a very simple perspective. Facebook, Twitter, Democrats, the media, just like the fellow said before, I look for who is for something, and if all of those people are for Ukraine, then I can't be for it, because I know that they are wrong every single time. They played us. They played us with BL. Just like Tucker said, but we've said it last week. Here's a curious, a curious thing: if Donald Trump was in Putin's back pocket. Why didn't uh, Putin attack Ukraine when his buddy was president? Why did he wait for the line of the West, Joe Biden became president, to attack? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then another thing, I'm sitting, I'm sitting here just thinking, you know, they, 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 they want a war. They want a war with Russia. They want a war with Russia. And I'm trying to figure out why do they want a war with Russia? I don't know, but I tell you what I do know. Come November, and I, you know, I was telling you this yesterday. If the gas prices are six dollars a gallon, seven dollars a gallon, eight dollars a gallon, here's going to be the press release from the media, the Democrats, and everything. Due to the high price of gas brought on by the war in the Ukraine and supply chain issues and white supremacy. We cannot, we cannot, we're going to can't vote in public, in person, because we would disenfranchise poor people, women are minorities mostly, for being, because they can't afford to drive to the polls to vote in person. So that may be, I just thought that might be a way they may try to steal the election. 
And then they'll probably throw in a healthy dose of white supremacist American homegrown terrorists that are trying to destroy our democracy or threatening violence at the polls to all, you know, stop anyone that's trying to vote for freedom and democracy. You know, that's what they do. They accuse you of doing what they're doing. But there's got to be an end game here. And it's got to be a little bit more than uh, just the military complex. I know that's a big part of it, and I've got to figure out the end game. But as of right now, I am certain of one thing, that these people that are running our country are not incompetent. They're evil. But they are, they are def- the media is not incompetent. The mainstream media, no, they're not incompetent. They're doing exactly what they need to do. From any com- if, if any communist country would be proud of our mainstream media. If, old, if Hitler was alive today, Goebbels was alive today, if Stalin was alive today, they would say, now that's how it's supposed to be done, boys. Because we're being played like a tutor for it. They aren't stupid. We're stupid. Seventy, evidently, seventy-five percent of Americans are stupid. We got played during BLM Antifa. We got played during COVID, and we're getting played right now. And as far as it got, as far as I know, we probably did get played for three hundred years. Got to take a break, Breeze. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. Here's Steve in Florence. Good morning, Steve. You're on the air. Good morning, guys. Yeah, you guys ever see those Mark Dice videos where he's telling people to sign a petition to save the triceratops and stuff like that? I think when you say no fly zone to somebody, that sounds cute and innocent, right? You just don't fly there. But I don't think they understand that you're going to get shot down and who's going to be doing the shooting down. And... um trying to sift through all the propaganda with all our media stations are saying the same thing said when you go to Alex Jones to try to find out what's kind of going on and then sift through it all. But yeah. I'll take it off the air. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Uh, you know, and, and the, 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 you know, so, some of the, um, some of the propaganda, some of the media misinformation, I mean, that's to be expected. I mean, there is a certain uncertainty that we have about any of these sorts of situations. But that number kind of startled me when I read it yesterday, the Reuters poll, 74% of Americans, and I think Steve's right, you know, do you or do you not support the Ukrainians? Yeah. I mean, look at my sign, man. I mean, I got my, I got blue and yellow on my Facebook post now. You know, I've got, um, I'm wearing a blue and yellow shirt. I got a badge on. I'm flying a flag in my yard. Support the Ukraines. Hell yeah. You know, let's uh, let's stand up against big bad bully Russia, to the point of um, someone asking an American citizen, "How about this no-fly zone?" Seventy-four percent of Americans support America enforcing a no-fly zone in Ukraine, and we're supposed to be a war-weary nation. The propaganda has worked, and Putin Three says, quarters of you have been convinced that this is in America's best interest." The point I'm trying to make, Rev, is. Do we trust Ukraine that much? Do we understand the nature of this um, invasion that well? I mean, let's take Lindsey Graham, one of the most hawkish senators in America. Does Lindsey understand Ukraine to the point of willing to commit 
American military assets, and I'm ta- talking about planes and, and I'm talking about human beings in airplanes, someone's kid in an airplane uh, policing the, the airspace in Ukraine. I mean, we're going to commit to Ukraine in that sort of form and fashion? Never, as far as I'm concerned, never would I do anything as aggressive as that in a part of the world that has historically let us down time after time after time. How many times have we heard Ukraine's a fledgling democracy? How do we know that? What is the president of Ukraine? He's an actor and a comedian. He may be as sincere as the day is long, or he may not be. But we believe that we understand the complexities of Ukraine-Russia to the point of involving ourselves at the beginning of a world war? No. I hope we're more serious than that, but apparently we aren't. Because 74% of you in less than a week have been convinced that it's our job to police the airspace over Ukraine. Wow. Wow. And I heard Putin say that he considers that an act of war if the Western world takes part in a no-fly zone over Ukraine. As as someone just said, it sounds sounds a little bit giddy. Yeah, we're going to police the airspace. We'll send our military supremacy. We'll send our air supremacy. You know, and we'll teach um, Russia a lesson in the skies of Ukraine? Really? In the skies of Ukraine? Take a break. Back in a minute. I want to state as clearly as I can, uh, speaking of the, the voice man who insults me, it gets paid to insult me every single <laughs> um, intro and outro, um, but I want to be clear here. This is a part of politics that I'm, as, I'm not as versed on this. I've never spent much of my political life paying attention to international affairs. I mean, I've just not. I've been a bit disinterested in that. Uh, I would argue that most Americans are. I mean, most Americans understand taxes and domestic policy far better than they do what happens abroad. The, the point I'm trying to make is emotionally we all get invested in certain things w- when we see horrific activities. I mean, when you see a bully punch a, uh, let's take, uh, let's use the school ground, uh, schoolyard as an example. I mean, if you see a, a 200-pound kid punch a 120-pound kid in the mouth, you become emotionally invested in that. Now, now some have the courage to intervene. Most say, I don't like it, but I'm not doing anything about it because I don't want to get punched in the mouth. But some of us, or, 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 you know, courageous or stupid enough to kind of involve ourselves in that. Probably get punched in the mouth. Maybe not. Maybe the bully backs down when somebody stands up to the bully. So, so the argument I'm trying to make is I'm not condoning for a second what Russia's done. The point I'm trying to articulate is there, there is somewhat of an understanding we Westerners have with, uh, with Russia, right? I mean, I grew up in the Cold War. Everything I know about Russia is what I've been told. And maybe I'm gullible enough to believe some of that. I think Russia is a communist nation that believes in expansionism 101. And taking over territories has not been uncommon in their world. I mean, it's not. this is not the first time Russia has expanded or the former Soviet Union. I mean, I, I told you, go back and look at the maps of Europe. I mean, they're always changing. That There's a gentleman who's living in a house today somewhere in Europe in the same house that he's lived in. He's nearly 100 years old, and he's lived in four different countries. Think I mean, about that. yeah, the, the, the European borders are always in flux. They're always moving. The point I'm trying to make is 74% of Americans believe we should enforce a no-fly zone over the skies of Ukraine, a country that we know so very little about. 
I mean, this is not Idaho. We're talking about Idaho a second ago. This is not South or North Carolina. This is not Florida. This is not something we have a a familiarity with and an awareness of. This is a land far, far away that we know so little about. The only narrative we have is what the media has provided. Do we trust the media narrative or not? To some degree, we have to. To what degree? And there is no way in Hades that I trust the political body in Washington and the media narrative to the point of believing that I have enough understanding of what's going on in Ukraine to put American lives at risk. No way in the world would I agree to that. Let's go to the phone. Here's Rick in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Rick. Hey, good morning. Hey, Rick. Um, Hey, good morning to you. This is a pretty emotional topic for me because in about an hour, I'm going to be in front of a classroom of right 17 and 8-year-olds call and roll, and I would not send any of those kids to Ukraine. Um, I wouldn't, but that comes with a price. I am a historian, and I am not a Russian apologist, so before I start, but if you'll think back, remember when Cuba signed a treaty with the Soviet Union, Okay, that's cool. And then they put Russian missiles on Cuba. Mm-hmm. That's the closest this world's ever come to being destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, fingers were on the trigger. Right now, we've got border countries bordering Russia, and we're saying, hey, come on and join NATO. It's kind of, to me, the same analogy. Um, and that could be why Putin is reacting the way he is. He sees what an enemy alliance you know, forming on his border. Rick, did we intentionally force Putin's hand? I mean, you're arguing, and I agree with you, we forced Putin to react in some way, shape, or form. Is that what our motivation was? Did, did we intentionally create a, a some sort of reaction from Vladimir Putin? I, think, I don't think we did it intentionally. I think we did it out of ignorance of history. Um, the other thing is, though, now, if there, it comes with a price. If we do not honor our treaty obligations we abdicate our place as leader of the free world that will tell the whole world that the united states is not dependable and they will not you know honor their treaty obligations the other thing i wanted to you know i agree with an earlier caller about us being played by the media the biggest thing we're being played by is oil independence um Every gallon that comes out of the ground in Texas, every barrel that comes out, belongs to a group of cartels that are very much as ruthless as the illegal narcotic ones, and that's the international oil companies. They're loving this. If you look at stock prices of oil companies or executive bonuses, they are popping champagne corks and celebrating. If we cut off the Russian pipeline to Europe, BP, Exxon, Shell, all those cartel companies are just going to take our oil, and we're going to have to bid against Europe for it. They're loving these prices. So we are being played, but we're being played by a number of people. Okay, we're me, going to have to make some very serious choices. Here. Uh, uh, you're a historian, and I want, I want to get your take on this because I actually got some notes here on my page. Um, do you believe the international oil companies, the Exxons, the BPs, the Shells of the world are fanning the flames of political discontent? In other words, are they trying to hop up? The, the conditions of what's happening in Ukraine in, in hopes of or anticipation of creating, uh, I don't want to say euphoria, the oil, oil markets, but the um, you see where I'm headed. I mean, do you, do you believe that Exxon, yes, I, I mean, obviously, uh, obviously Exxon has a vested interest in higher oil prices. 
that they're more Look, profitable when old is more. Yeah, during a worldwide pandemic, people weren't traveling, so there was an ex- there was an excess in supply. We loved it. That meant low gas prices. Right now, the cartels, which I tend to call them, <laughs> are loving it, and hell yeah, they're panning it. Um, they're they're making money hand over fist, and we are sitting there buying into it. Oh, my God, we were oil independent. I'm sorry, unless somebody nationalized the oil industry in the last few weeks and didn't tell me, we are still subject to the international oil market. Yeah, because if if, so, if, 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 if a foreign land is willing to pay more for a barrel of oil that Exxon produces, that's who they sell it to. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, so we're just, we're play, we're being played but we're being played by a lot of different factors that are a lot smarter than you or I. Oh, no question about it. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate the call. But it's still, I mean, guys, and here's where, I mean, here's here. I, I do have somewhat of an understanding of energy. I mean, th- this is still about energy. I mean, it, once again, we, I think we can agree as an audience, we are more familiar and have a better historical understanding of Russia than we do Ukraine. Can I get a second there? I, I mean, I think so. the majority of us would say, yeah, I don't know a lot about Russia. But I know even less about Ukraine. Uh, I, what, what I do know about Russia, I've been taught, trained, and conditioned to believe certain things. But but our problem in America is we believe that because an oil company is domiciled in America, it it reserves the right to keep that oil off. Or excuse me, it um it is forced, maybe not forced. It's encouraged to keep that oil off the open market. Instead, supply our own. Um, you know, an American oil company supplies Americans with oil. Um, that, that's kind of the, the America first theory of the American first orthodoxy, but it's not the truth. I mean, if Exxon produces a barrel of oil and the consumers of Germany decide to pay $103 a barrel and America offers $102 a barrel, that oil is exported, um, to Germany. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Shell, Shell made a play for a hundred metric tons of, I don't know why they didn't count it in barrels, but, but it was a hundred, a uh, hundred thousand metric tons of oil it's russian oil they bought it at the biggest discount anybody's ever bought uh some of this brent oil some of this brent crude um they bought it at 28.50 below the price of what they call the international benchmark and that is for brent crude that is the widest discount ever on record yesterday shell apologized and said they were not going to do any more of that but it was profit but I mean, they had a chance to make a big buy at a steep discount, and Shell did it. So if you believe that, I mean, we talked about the defense contractors, the Honeywells, the the the, uh, the McDonnell Douglases, the Boeings of the world, uh, we know that international conflict is good for business in their world, right? I mean, if the American people are paranoid about being attacked, uh, they don't complain as much about the military-industrial complex and some of the uh, some some of the extravagant spending within. But, but I think Rick's on to something here. The international oil companies have a lot at stake when energy seems to be in, in short supply. When we have this, um, the, dis, the disruption of distribution, by that I mean when, um, when some of the Western world says we're not going to take any more Russian oil, um, that's a good day for Exxon. I mean, that's a great day for shale. Uh, and and the, the, I mean, the energy market's complicated, no doubt about it, supply and demand. We're um, consuming about 100 million barrels a day, so we need to produce about 100 million barrels a day. Um, if that spread stays in place, oil is probably priced somewhere 
I mean, I, you know, I've read a lot of different numbers, somewhere between 60 and $80 a barrel. Um, the, the oil companies can be profitable and, and, and we can afford gasoline and uh, there's enough supply to meet the demand. That's kind of the, um, the way the oil markets work and it ebbs and flows, no question about that. But we have this shock to the energy markets and Russia is such a big energy producer. And it's not just that Russia, Russia produces 11% of the oil we consume as a planet. But when you take 11% offline, or when you try to wean yourself off 11%, try to live your life this week with 11% less income or 11% less whatever. You know, I mean, 11, I mean, that's a big number. I mean, 11% is a big number to take off uh, the global marketplace. And we've tried to figure that out. Shell got themselves in a position to make a deal. And they made a deal that they bought, once again, uh, the international benchmark that they bought about $28.50 less than market value and probably made tons of money because they bought metric tons of oil, 100,000 metric tons. They've since apologized. But not only is the the, the sort of uh, political and military conflict advantageous for this uh, the defense contractors, the, the, the energy producers in America do real well when chaos ensues, when we become deeply concerned about, is there enough oil? How do we find more oil? Where do we get the oil from? Um, and it's not as easy as this, guys, but this really and truly goes down the road of America first. You know, I, I'm crazy enough to throw this on the table. I'm not a supporter of it. What about a state-run energy company in America? I mean, if we're going to truly be America first, and non-intervention is going to be the way of the world or the way of America moving forward. You're competing with other state-run energy companies around the world, right? You're exactly right. I mean, I don't blame Exxon for trying to make as much profit as they can. Exxon is not obligated to sell all their crude oil and gasoline to American companies and, and consumers, are they? I mean, we're in a global economy. That's what I keep hearing. We're in a global economy, Ken. You're, you're one of these nationalist non-interventionists. You got to snap out of that. We're in this global economy. We're we're eternally connected one to another. So Exxon is not obligated as a company domiciled in America uh, to do business with just American consumers and businesses. I mean, if somebody in Europe's willing to pay more for Exxon gasoline, guess what? That's who gets it. That's where it ends up. What about a state-run energy company? I mean, I, I'm not arguing for it. I'm just arguing hypothetically. What would that look like? I mean, if we produce enough energy to provide our, if we produce enough energy as America to be energy independent, if Exxon doesn't sell energy to Germany and France and Italy and Greece and, 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 and you know, Shell and some of these other American companies don't, well, Shell's a different animal because it's kind of an international, well, they're all international companies. I mean, they're all international companies. I mean, what, what does BP stand for? British, British Petroleum. Petroleum. Oh, they're all, and I, I, you know, I tend to agree with Rick. They're international cartels is what they are, and they have enormous influence and make unbelievable amounts of money. And, yes, they sway the media. They sway the narrative. And, and when some military conflict ensues, they fan the flames to make it even more um, hyperbolic than it is in hopes and anticipation that it will shock the oil market. What happens when the oil market is shocked? What happens when people start buying futures and puts and all these other sorts of things? I saw yesterday where there's some futures at two hundred dollars a barrel. I mean, there, there's some there's some what? reasonable there's some reasonable uh, prognosticators out there 
buying futures on $200 oil. It's $122 this morning. Gas is four bucks a barrel. But if it goes to $200 a barrel, you're talking about $7 gasoline somewhere thereabout. Now, once again, that's probably not the majority of speculation, but there's some out there that see this playing out that way. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Uh, good morning. And uh, my, uh, my, I don't know what to say. Congratulations or condolences to uh, at the Gato moving on to uh, greener pastures. <laughs> I hope he does well, and I hope y'all find someone else to abuse. But, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> because it's it humorous at some points. Uh, but uh, there, I have several points, and uh, one part, uh, question I want you to ask the professor. But first of all, I, I call him professor first of all. He's going to come on uh, shortly. The... Uh, the most people have no idea what a no fly zone is. They don't. They don't know what it really means when you say no fly zone. I would. I would say less than twenty five percent of the people understand what a no fly zone is and uh, what uh, what it takes to enforce a no fly zone. So, it, is that poll? That's a pretty much meaningless poll in a way. But uh, is, is this like your uh, and Breeze's skepticism about what's going on? There's forces of the world going on that are just like the tides, and they're moving. And I don't completely understand them, don't pretend to understand them. But I know they're there, and I know that these uh, these forces, it's like the uh, prophetic uh, author, George Orwell in his uh, novel, 1984, which was a little bit off track uh, by a few decades. But, uh, you know, we're at war with Oceania. Uh, no, we've uh, never been at war with Oceania. Oh, you, and, and the next day, we've always been at war with Oceania. You know, it's just whatever the, uh, what, whatever the government uh, chooses to say, and that's what you've got to agree with. And um, it's uh, and naturally these things are are confusing to the normal person, and it keeps them confused so that they're powerless to react against their uh, true oppressors. And as to uh, the pr- professor that I've listened to him for years, he's he's very intelligent. He's insightful on a lot of issues. He has tremendous analytical skills and a great deal of just knowledge. But uh, how, what in the world is thinking? Where is the glitch, the bug in his thinking that could bring him to vote for Joe Biden? I mean, someone that uh, you ask him what Joe Biden's going to do, and Hannity, like a child, is always saying that. Uh, you could change this stuff. You could change this in a minute, and then Biden could be okay. Biden's not going to do anything. He always does the wrong thing, and inactivity is uh, his forte. So that it, nothing's going to happen with him. And we're uh, the thing is, I'm I'm sorry to say, we could easily drift into a um, a conflict without a no fly zone. 
very easily, Mike. Problem. Thank you for the call. Appreciate that. And I'll say this. we got to take a break. How many of you would care about this if it didn't affect the price of energy? I mean, if gas was $1.89 a gallon, two nineteen a gallon, how many of you are bothered by what's happening in Ukraine and Russia? I mean, I mean, this, I, mean I understand the emotions. I understand caring about your fellow man. Uh, as a Christian, I am my brother's keeper, whether they live in Ukraine or not. But how many of us would really be vested, committed to, I mean, 74% of Americans believe that we should enact a no-fly zone and NATO endorse it. I mean, we're the big dog in NATO. What if gas was $1.89 a gallon? What if gas were $1.99 a gallon? How much do you care about what happens in Ukraine then? Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I'll ask this question. I asked Rev during the break. Is the if you're an American and you hold a view of kind of isolation, in other words, we'll build a fence around our nation. We'll take care of our own. We'll take care of ourselves. Um, you folks sort out uh, whatever goes on in Europe. Goes on in Europe. Kind of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Um, you don't mess with us. We don't mess with you. Is that as dangerous as some of the imperialistic views of America, uh, the military-industrial complex in particular? Because there is a mindset in Washington of an imperial America. America has a responsibility to the world to put everybody in their place. I mean, I, I don't subscribe to that. I am a non-interventionist, America first, Jeffersonian libertarian. That's a lot, but that's how I categorize myself in the political scale, and in the political spectrum. But do we have an obligation and a responsibility? And how dangerous is the world if we choose to just kind of um, put our guard up and say, hey, you folks sort it out, we'll sort ours out, and um, as long as you stay over there and we stay over here, no trouble from me. Is that as dangerous as the imperialistic perspective? I mean, I don't know the answer to that. But, but I, I'll tell you, we have found how dangerous nation building can be. And democracy in planning can be. I mean, that, that is arduous. It's complicated. It's difficult. It just doesn't work. And I've landed in a place of it's not worth it. But do we have some unspoken, unwritten responsibility to the world as the preeminent superpower to just pay attention and be involved, however casually or not uh, may be the case? Is one as dangerous as the other? Rev, you say, ah, yeah. Probably. Probably. I mean, if we you turn a blind eye to the world and say, hey, you hash it out, we'll hash it out. What does the world look like and what sort of world are we dealing with? But but once again, we've never tried that. Not in my lifetime. We have tried nation building and democracy in planning and, and, and trying to settle scores between Ukraine and Russia. That's not our responsibility. I'm sorry. I don't care what Senate. I don't care what senator says what. I don't care what member of Congress says what. I don't care how much money Boeing spends sponsoring Meet the Press. That is not our responsibility. We've never been successful at it, and we never will be successful at that. Let's go to the phone. Bert in the PD is our next caller. Hey, Bert. Good morning. You know what? I think I'm further down that road than any of you because I totally believe that it's none of our business. It's absolutely none of our business. We have the right to watch our borders and our interests. And as far as imperialism, I think we're more imperialistic than anybody. We've got bases all over the world where we have no business being none at all. So 
you know, how can you compare that with imperialism? I am all for not getting involved, and I'm all for taking what Russia's doing as an indication that we need to sure up our our physical borders and our electronic borders because cyber attacks are just as bad. And that's, that's where I stand, and that's where I always have, have stood. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. You know, there's a belief that if we do um, intervene and endorse or participate in one of these no-fly zones, I mean, some people, believe it or not, there are a lot of military experts, and we're talking about not trusting people, but you still listen. I mean, there's some military experts out there that believe Putin has, um, you know, regulated himself. He's not been as aggressive. He's not attacked American, um, you know, cyber securities and, uh, you know, China. We know the, the unholy alliance that Russia has with China. And the majority of their, their work and their diligence and their preparation is a world with America not as a superpower. I mean, when you, when you get down the road of uh, personal and, I don't know, collective perspectives, that's what Xi and China and, and Putin and Russia are ambitious of. A, a, there's going to be something replace America as the, the global superpower. We better be ready. And a lot of this calculus is based upon the West being in decline. I mean, I don't know how much of this happens if the West, and here I am talking about, you know, the West as somewhat of a globalist theory. I mean, it's complicated, guys. I mean, it's very, very, very complicated. Um, what is our responsibility in advocating for the Western world? I don't think we have any responsibility. I mean, maybe... Maybe in, in geopolitical affairs, and in other words, the expansion of Russia, the, 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 the power of China, maybe there's a reason to believe that, that making life more difficult for Putin and Ukraine is an American interest. But this is really, I mean, from what I'm gathering and what I'm reading and, and some of the opinions I trust, this is, a, this is a belief that China and Russia have that the West is in decline, and now is the time to act. Let's go to the phone. Here's Doug in Hartsville. Hello, Doug. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, you guys ran a political ad just a few minutes ago. And for, forgive me for jumping topic just one second. Um, I think it was William Schofield who was running for county council in Florence. Mm -hmm. um, he mentions that he wants to use planning and zoning to control commercial growth. And... I just couldn't believe I was hearing that from a person who's running as a Republican, first of all, because that planning and zoning is basically America's communism. It removes the private from private property and puts control of property in the hands of government. And I just, it just blew my mind when I heard that. So I, I can't believe that I'm hearing this guy running on those, those, those ideas. And he's being a Republican. So that just kind of blew my mind for a second. Just want to get that out there. Maybe we should investigate that a little bit more. But I'm with you when it comes to the aid to Ukraine. I don't think we should put America's lives on the line for that kind of thing. Now, we do have to safeguard our interests and our people. And self-defense is always, you know, a virtue. But as far as getting involved in a, a, another war outside of our country i'm really hesitant to do that especially when we're when talking about tax dollars being put online so i'm with you on that point but uh thank you for hearing me out guys thank you very interesting points appreciate that um 
you know, the Schofield ad, I've not heard it in its entirety, but I hear bits and pieces during the break. I'm normally trying to look up some information on the computer, make some notes to myself for the next segment that we're about to do, try to juggle some phone calls as we always are trying to do. Um, in my time in local politics, I've got some history in local politics and then a little history in state politics. In my time in local politics, here's what I found about planning and zoning. You ready? Don't tell me what I can do with my property, but you make damn sure they don't do that with theirs. Hmm. I mean, it, th- that's the nature of planning and zoning. And I get the conservative orthodox, the conservative mindset, limited government. I don't want government telling me what I can do with my property, but do you want government telling them what they can do with theirs? I'll give you a hypothetical. Let's say Cato makes a million dollars driving trucks, doing this new job. Hope you do. And I mean that sincerely. You know I do. Hope you make $10 million. Um, and Cato decides to build a big house on a piece of property on the edge of town. And I don't have a million dollars, but I've got a hog ranch, a hog farm. And I build my fence post right up on Cato's border. Cato's got a, a million-dollar home, spectacular palace on the outskirts of Florence. Um, I own the adjoining land, and I've got, you know, 75 or 80 hogs running um, and, and smelling and all these other sorts of things. Is it government's responsibility to create consistency in neighborhoods? You know, you got PUDs and you got a lot of other um, carve-outs in, in, in that way, but it's always a complicated discussion. Um, I tend to land where the caller landed. Um, that's your property. You do with your property what you choose to do with your property. Um, but does government have an obligation to help Cato protect the value of his property, or does that person have a right to build a hog pen next door to a million-dollar house? I mean, I think those are real-world complexities that we all deal with. Um, but but I did. I found out in planning and zoning, and I was going to be the most caring public servant ever. Uh, the first, when I got elected in November of 2004, first planning meeting in January of 2005, I wanted to show the public that I cared more than anybody on county council, and I went to the planning and zoning meeting. I've never been to another one. <laughs> really? Why? Never been Stay clear to of that? Yeah, because you, anytime, well, we've got a council member sitting in the back, and the next week you got a council mm, member sitting uh-oh. in the back. wonder what the council member sitting in the back thinks. And I just, I just made my mind up, nope. I mean, I had an appointment on the Planning and Zoning Commission, uh, and, and some of these things get very, very complicated. The, the issue that I think um, City Councilman Schofield, who's running for county council, is discussing is something that came out over these airwaves a couple of months ago when one of the most established neighborhoods in town had a donut hole in its zoning ordinance and someone is building a low-income apartment complex next door to one of the most established neighborhoods in, uh, in Florence. And the people living in the most established neighborhoods don't want the multifamily low-income housing development built next door. And here we are with a bit of a, um, a conundrum, uh, I might say. So planning and zoning in some circles is being accepted more readily to protect, enhance, preserve, um, make more consistent property rights and property um, ownership. And, and and true conservatives, libertarian-leaning conservatives in particular, are always struggling with, you know, um, that's not the government's job. That's not government's responsibility. If I buy land from Cato, that's my land. And I can do with my land anything I choose to do with my land. Um, but, but as some of the amendments 
does the does the First Amendment have certain restrictions? Can you yell fire in a in a crowd of theater? A true libertarian thinks you can. I mean, they really do. Is there any restrictions on the Second Amendment? A true libertarian doesn't believe they are. In other words, um, I don't need constitutional carry. I don't need open carry. I don't need concealed carry. The Constitution via the Second Amendment gives me the right to keep and bear arms. That's all I need. So there are, or there is a mindset in American politics, more libertarian than anything, that, you know, that's my property. I do with it what I choose to do. That's your property. You choose to do with it what you choose to do. But then you get into consistencies of neighborhoods, um, you know, where can you build a convenience store? Where can you build a manufacturing plant? And I can be very conflicted on some of those issues, but I think Councilman Schofield's um, campaign, I don't want to say centers on this, but he's speaking a lot to what has happened uh, in that council district with one of the most established neighborhoods and a failure to zone property led to the potential for a, a low-income um, multifamily, I don't want to say project because it's not a project, apartment complex. There you go. Apartment complex that um that is deeply offended or bothered, you know, people that have lived in that neighborhood for many, many, many years. Uh, let's go to the phone, and then we'll take our break. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, uh, Ken, you mentioned Boise, Idaho. When I think of Boise, Idaho, I think of Leonard Skinner. So this is my tribute to Kato, my man there. And you're talking about there's there, we have a transition. When these people go from up north to Florida, we call them snowbirds. I call them free birds now. And they'll go anywhere to get away from that kind of stuff. And I'll give old Springsteen a buddy credit. He has sung some songs from Johnny Cash. And Elvis Presley, I mean, he'll do a good job of Walk the Line and Jailhouse Rock and Heartbreak Hotel. And here's here's a something that, that Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley have in common. They both served in, in the armed forces in West Germany. So if you want to talk about West versus East, that's the dividing line uh, back in the day. And I give Ronald Reagan credit because you had Reagan, Thatcher, and the Pope basically beat the Soviet Union. And these cats that are in charge now, if you remember 99 La Balloons, you like candles. Uh, I'm talking about the Duke, Yale, Princeton crowd. That's who's in charge now. you got Anthony Blinken, the Jake Sullivan's of the world. And what they're doing right now, they are trying to change all our problems, blame it on Ukraine. I think there was a Millie Vanilli song called Blame It on the Rain. Uh, they're going to blame it on Trump. It's To me, it's unbelievable. I watched uh, our, our man the other day talk about the Biden bounce. Um, this is NBC. What was the Chuck, Chuck, Todd. But anyway, I, I'll leave you at this, man. We, we're dealing in a pre-planned paradigm shift with these climate activist, climate junkies. I'll leave you at that. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843 I've had a lot of people ask me how they can get tickets. They want VIP tickets to the Trump rally. Oh. I'll tell you how you can. There's a Trump-endorsed candidate in this race named Russell Fry. Russell sent me a text yesterday or last night 
And um, I said, hey, man, I'm getting a lot of people asking about tickets. They don't want just the regular tickets you get online. They want VIP tickets. They want to have special access, some some pre-rally uh, festivities. And Russell said, well, I'm the guy. For 500 bucks, you get two tickets. For 1000 bucks, you get six tickets. And once again, it includes a pre-rally um, tent event. I mean, I don't have any idea. Food and beverage, I would imagine, will be included. Um, special seating at the event. So for you out there who want a little enhanced experience, um, I would imagine get in touch with the Russell Fry campaign. He is the Trump-endorsed candidate in this race. He's got a couple of packages. One includes two tickets, uh, some of the pre-rally festivities, and special seating for 500 bucks, six tickets for a grand. And, and, and why are people calling you again? Because they know that I know you. <laughs> no. I'm and you are the ticket the, daddy yeah, like of all times. Uh, no, but let's, let's go to the Got to come clean. Let's I mean, go to the you, you are a co-chair of the Trump rally event this weekend. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Just want to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just wanted to answer the question and put the uh, connect the dots why people would be calling you for VIP tickets. The same reason I call you and I need concert tickets, because I know you are the, the radio guru of all <laughs> Cause, time. Because you know people. And can get me backstage at any concert in the I history see. of mankind. Okay. <laughs> uh, Ray in Florence. Hello, Ray. Hello. This is Ray Kingsbury. I was just wanted to put, do a shout out to your uh, audience about a meeting of the Florence County GOP tonight. And uh, the emphasis is going to continue to be on election security. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, meetings on this, but tonight we have a uh, understudy of, of Dr. Doug Frank. And uh, he uh, it's, uh, it's a she is going to be presenting data concerning the, our situation with regard to, to uh, our South Carolina and even Florence. Uh, election results from 2020 and uh, from that we can be talking about uh, you know what are we doing and I do know that our legislators uh, you know Philip Lowe and <clears throat> and Jay Jordan are, are working feverishly to try to correct some of the problems of the past and I thank them for that but the meeting is going to be at uh, the McLennigan Annex uh, Florence uh, uh, School One Annex is at 500 uh, South Dargan. So it starts with some uh, vittles and at uh, 6:30, and the actual meeting starts at 7 o'clock. And uh, we just want to invite everybody and uh, who's is interested and, uh, and encourage them to come. So I thank you for this venue to to do the shout out. Thank you, Ray. Appreciate it. Good luck tonight. Hope you have a good a good turnout. Um, there's still rain in the forecast for this Saturday. And I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. He's been in politics much longer and far more, he's far better versed than I've ever considered being. But we got into this discussion about, you know, the, the Save America Super PAC. This is not a GOP rally in Florence on Saturday. This is a Donald Trump Save America rally in Florence. On, uh, on Sunday, and Ray's talking about the GOP, you know, having Saturday. their, uh, yes, yeah, Saturday, I'm sorry, Ray's talking about the GOP having their monthly meeting tonight. Um, I've heard it explained in political circles that this is a Republican rally in Florence on Saturday that features Donald Trump. This is not a Republican rally. 
This has nothing to do with the state party. This is all about Save America and the Super PAC. This is a kind of a, um, I mean, it's an offshoot, no question about it. Trump didn't run as an America First candidate. He ran as a Republican candidate, but with an America First agenda that, that was so enticing and intriguing to many, many, many Americans. But I've had a discussion with several people about, is this a Republican rally? No. This rally is a Save America rally. It is about Donald Trump and, I guess, uh, Reb, the the continued re-imaging of the Republican Party. 843-661-0937. We'll be back in just a minute. So Cato's in charge of the music. Cato's in charge of the music the rest of this week. Um, And he found a song Bruce didn't write. Uh, congratulations, <laughs> Cato, for finding a song that Springsteen did not write. Hey, I've got some other information to pass along here in just a second. But people have asked about tickets to the event um, Saturday at the airport, the Trump rally. Um, I just got a text here from a um, someone who works for the SCGOP. Um, they've got a lot of offerings here. They've got a silver sponsor package, a bronze sponsor package, a VIP guest sponsor package a Trump rally fast pass. Um, I don't want to go into details because um, they don't pay me to read this. I'm kidding. I'm, kidding. Uh, I'm, I'm altruistic. I'm all helping or all about helping people. The best thing to do when it comes to the VIP packages with the SCGOP is send an email to mark at scgop.com. Mark at scgop.com. Dot com if you want to buy any sort of VIP ticket package. I mean, I'm getting inundated. That means a lot for you folks from Pamplica. I'm getting inundated <laughs> uh, with uh, requests about where, where do I go? How, what do I do? I want to get a little better um, ticket than just I don't want to take the chances of being, you know, in the back row at Madison Square Garden and can't see Springsteen sing Born to Run. Um, I want to be up close. I'm willing to pay a little bit more. Well, the Russell Fry campaign, we just talked about that for a second. The Russell Fry campaign has offerings. Um, Go to his website, find out more. And the SCGOP has offerings as well. Um, There are packages from here to yonder, depending on how much money you want to spend and how much intimacy you want to have with the event. There are packages for six tickets. There are packages for two tickets. There are packages for four tickets. There are some of these fast pass for an individual that doesn't want to spend very much money. Um, now, the tickets are free if you go online, but I don't know that you're guaranteed to get in. I mean, you know, I don't know if there's a capacity, if there's a limit, if fire marshals will be involved with sort of parking. There will be, I don't have any idea about any of that, but I've had a lot of people ask me about special offerings of tickets. And what I know is the SCGOP has a package and the Russell Fry campaign, because he's the Trump-endorsed candidate in this particular um, congressional race, also has uh, packages available. So get in touch with the Fry campaign or email mark at scgop.com um, and leave me alone. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> well, hey, that, that comes with the territory when you are co-chairman of the event. Mr. Chairman. Yeah, okay. Thank uh, you, Rev. T- Tony in Calhoun County listening to WTQS. Low Tony? Good morning. Hey, I have some contrarian craziness for everybody. Okay. We're ready. All right. Um, it depends upon your perspective, this Ukrainian thing. From my perspective, the Obama administration violated the territorial sovereignty of Ukraine when it you know, funded the overthrow of the, Ukrainian, the pro-Russian Ukrainian government. 
So what if you view it as Putin sees that, too, as, as an aggression by the West to overthrow the Ukrainian government? And to comply or to keep his agreement, you know, at the Budapest Memorandum, now, you know, he tried, you know, to get the government back, but now he has to use force to do it. So his use of force to, to restore the Ukrainian government to what it was at the state of the time of the agreement is actually him enforcing the agreement. In other words, he's the only one who isn't violating it. He's the one who's actually enforcing it. Um, and then you look at his actions. You know, I told you he wanted that buffer zone of the Ukraine between him and between NATO and Mother Russia. Um, look at his actions, what he did. He, he first built up troops in Yelnia, and the media tried to scare everybody saying they're on the border. Um, that didn't work. The talks didn't progress. So then he moved a small number of forces. Immediately, within six hours, he was at Kiev, and then he stopped. That's telling the Ukrainians, hey, we aren't joking. We're now in your country. We're at your capital city. Now let's talk. Let's work this out. Let's let's do this peacefully. So we have to destroy everything. And they didn't work it out peacefully. Now Putin's moved in all the other troops, took you know, encircled all the other cities, and and now he's you know destroying all the stuff. Um, so you know, it's just another way to look. Well, at it. and that's an interesting perspective. Thank you, Tony. Doctor Scott Kaufman is with us. You've devoted much more of your life to understanding that part of the world, the history. And um, I don't know, political, economic, cultural nature of that part of the world. What do you make of, uh, of Tony's comments? Well, I think we have to consider here that Putin doesn't see this as him somehow um, restoring the, the status quo, if you will. Uh, as far as Putin is concerned, based on all the stuff I'm seeing, he believes wrongly that Russians, Belarusians and Ukrainians are all the same. And he is very upset with the fact that the Ukrainians are willing to break away, if you will, from Russia to try to join the EU to ask for membership in NATO. Now, I'm not saying that I, I believe that Ukraine should be allowed into NATO. In fact, I, I oppose the idea. Um, but as far as Putin's concerned, to him, this is a violation of the way he views things. Now, I will agree with, with the caller that Putin does also believe that that Russia is under threat. I mean, here's a guy who was a member of the KGB when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, when communism collapsed throughout Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, uh, and who wants to restore Russia's greatness and to allow the Ukraine to break away uh, would be seen by him as an act of weakness um, and would also pose a threat to Russia as far as he's concerned. So, he, he's determined to go in there. And this one of the thing here, this idea that the, the convoy stopped because he's trying to send a message to the Ukrainians, that is not what I'm reading. The reading I'm reading the convoy stopped because they've been having all kinds of logistical issues. Running out uh, of fuel, fuel, fuel food. food, that some of the these Russian troops are sabotaging their own equipment. They're under attack from the Ukrainians. Uh, that even the Chinese, the tires they're using came from China and are, are exploding and not, uh, they have to get new tires. So that's why it's stopping. It's not because that he's trying to send a message to the Ukrainians of I'm going to send those those forces in even further if you if you don't negotiate. It's just that they're having all kinds of, of logistical issues. But, but Scott, we understand. I said earlier, and we got called and we'll get there in two seconds. I said much earlier, I mean, I have a better historical understanding of Russia. I mean, the 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 nature of the relationship America, the Western world has had with Russia is it's not crystal clear to me because I'm not a historian. 
I, I'm, I'm a lay person who, um, you know, ran for public office and was forced to understand the complexities of the world, geopolitics of the world a little better than than most. But I'm still not someone who has, uh, is versed in Russian foreign affairs and what makes Putin, uh, you know, what makes him tick and why the the synergies between China. I mean, you know, I'm not going down that far, that far down the road. I know nothing about Ukraine. I mean, I, I know absolutely nothing about Ukraine and to suggest that American forces should be involved in an enforcement of a, a no-fly zone over Ukraine, a, a country in the world that I know so little about, is a reach for me. What do you say as someone who is uh, far more historically informed about that that region of the world? I, I would I would also oppose the idea of the United States being involved uh, directly in so far as like a no-fly zone because that's risking World War III. Uh, what we what we should be doing uh, is what we're doing right now. Um, punishing the Soviets economically, we are providing and support providing our help supporting the, the efforts of other nations to provide aid to the Ukrainians. But you would agree we're punishing the Americans. So I mean, Westerners are paying twice as much for for fuel as they. Are. So it's not just Putin and the Russians who are being punished. The, the Americans and the rest of the Western world, because of their dependency on unfriendlies for their for their energy. Well, and the question is, are the American people or others willing to accept that? Uh, if we look at 83% of Americans... What's the want, choice? Well, I mean, we rely very little on Russian oil. I think about 1% of our oil comes from Russia. But the Western world does. Well, Germany, places like Germany does. Correct. And even if even if um, the United States didn't rely at all on Russian oil, um, the, the very fact that you have these is, issues of supply and demand, uh, the, the fact that we're talking about embargoing oil from Russia, that makes the oil markets very wary. It leads oil prices to go up. But you also have many Americans saying, look, um, I, I'm willing to support this. 83% of Americans, I like the idea of more sanctions. 71% say if we have to embargo Russian oil, let's do it. And we're willing to accept the cost. Now, the question is for how long? When we embargo Russian oil, we create a supply shortage. That, that's the reality. Whether we buy oil from Russia or not, the rest of the world scrambles to find a replacement for the 11% of the global production that Russia does provide. So, so whether we're buying oil from Russia, we are, but we're not, so it was 570 or 80, it was about 600,000 gallons or barrels a day uh, of Russian oil. It's not the, the major contributor to how we power our, our economy. Here's the point I want to make to you, and I want to get your, I'd love to hear your take on this. Um, is this a national security issue? Oil? Correct. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as we sit today, it's, it's, it's always are, has are, been. are we in a position that we should consider our national security interests when it comes to the price of gasoline and the availability of oil? Well, we all we have. We have historically. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we were so determined to make sure we had access to Middle Eastern oil is because it was seen as a national security issue. So consistently with that, I mean, if we believe, if you and I believe that we are facing an issue of national security, why not? Even those who support renewable energy, and I get that, I mean, I understand this great debate we're having about fossil fuels and traditional energy production and new and renewable and wind and solar and all these other sorts of things with climate change as a part of that debate. But if this is a national security issue and we don't have the, the ability to generate the power necessary to power the largest economy on the planet, why not forsake some of those requirements in the short run and get us back to a place of producing more energy here at home? Well, one of the things is, we, you asked about the Keystone Pipeline last week. 
even if we went ahead with the Keystone Pipeline, use it as an argument for national security, would not even be open until 2023. And even at full capacity, it would not have a major impact upon oil prices globally, which it, of course would affect the United States. We also have to keep in mind... But some of the fracking rigs would. I mean, some of the fracking rigs could generate power within 60 days. Potentially, but there's an issue there. And that is that the oil companies and the gas companies reduced production during COVID. And they're having a difficult time ramping production back up because there are labor shortages and there are there are shortages of equipment. It is also important to point out two other things. One is that there are about 9,000 oil and gas leases that are unused. And the other thing we have to point out is there is opposition. And you're talk, you've talked about this being a liberal issue. There's opposition among Republicans to the idea of doing uh, of increasing oil production. For instance, our own governor is opposed to the idea of drilling off the coast of South Carolina to look for oil because of the impact it might have, for instance, on tourism. So it's a na- I agree, it's a national security issue, but it's an issue that, number one, at least at this point, Americans are willing to accept the sacrifices based upon the poll numbers. But number two, it also points to our need to look at other sources of energy to become more independent. We, we, rely, about, we rely on a wind and solar for about 17% of our, of our energy now, today. We need to continue looking at those kinds of sources so that if there are these kinds of issues happening in the world market with regard to oil, we are more energy independent. And, and, I don't, and, and believe it or not, as a, as a fairly conservative Republican, I don't disagree with the pursuit of renewable energy. We're just not there yet. I mean, it's a pipe dream to believe that we can just stop producing fossil fuel-based energy in, in, in preference to green energy today, tomorrow, or the next day. You talked about how long it would take to get the Keystone Pipeline online. I'm arguing it takes a half century to get us to a place of generating enough energy via renewable to consider weaning ourselves off fossil fuel. And I think you would agree to this. Putin's leverage in all of these endeavors is his ability to produce energy. It's a big one. But we also have the fact that he has that military might as sure, well. Sure, but, but the military might is funded how? Well, it's funded through, in, in part, through the, those the revenue generated via a big energy producer. I want to I want to do this in just a second because Dr. Bolt's not here today. So I want I want to delve into this at great length as long as you're willing to stay sure. here. Um, let's go to the phone. Someone's sure. there. Well, Kato, let's go to the phone. I don't want to make our caller hold on too long, and then we'll take our break, and Scott will come back for another segment. Joe in Hartsville. Hi, Joe. You're on. Yeah. Good morning, guys. You know what Tony was saying about Russia protecting Ukraine. That, that might be plausible if you take out Crimea and Georgia in 2008 and 2014. Um, Putin is protecting Putin. The problem with America is we don't listen to our leaders. They told us, Barack Obama told us that gasoline and electricity is going to skyrocket. He's going to make it skyrocket. Joe Biden, in a debate, says, I'm going to shut down oil and gas. And, you know, Trump made a big deal out of it, but everybody, they still voted for him. Biden just shut down the China initiative at the end of February. That was the United States checking China's intellectual property theft and everything else in their you know, sending their subversives over here. Well, this, he he stopped that whole program somewhere around 23rd, 24th of February, 
while everything else is going on. So they're telling us what they're doing, and we're paying them no attention. So, you know, we get what we vote for. It's even coming into the local politics with this housing thing. Obama said we're going to make the, the the affordable housing. We're going to put it in your neighborhoods. We're going to do away with single-family homes, and you're going to urbanize just like New York City and New Jersey and stick a million people in two square miles. So we, we don't listen to what these idiots are telling us, and they vote for them anyway. So all you can do is protect yourself against that. And I don't know what else to do. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Let's take a break. We'll be back on the other side with Dr. Scott Coppin, history chair at Francis Marion University. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Crude oil jumps on report the U.S. to ban Russian oil imports. Um, It makes us feel giddy that we're not consuming Russian oil. We're penalizing Putin via some of the um, some of the sanctioning, but as I'm looking uh, on the website, um, gas futures are up 15 cent a gallon. Uh, the retail price of gas, none of the taxes included, three dollars seventy two cent. Uh, actually, seventeen cent now went up another couple of pennies while I'm sitting here talking to you guys. So the um, the the price of gas today, including no tax, retail price three seventy three. That would probably end up being. 425, 420, mm. somewhere thereabout when you include the federal and state taxes and a little bit of profit for the convenience store open. I, I've seen some Facebook posts condemning the convenience store owner. As a former convenience store owner, they ain't ripping you off on gas. I'll assure you of that. By the time they buy that gas, I mean, when you think about it, you got to replace the product in the ground, right? Let's say you pay 371 for what's in the ground now. To replace that product, you got to pay three seventy five. Well, I mean, that, you got to figure that into your model. You take Visa charges and Mastercard charges. I mean, they're getting about two and a half percent. It's a uh, you know, stop with it. Stop believing that the convenience store owner is getting rich selling you gas. I'll assure you, Exxon is, Shell is, BP is. The convenience store owner is doing all he or she can right now to break even on gasoline. Um, if you go buy gas from a convenience store today and you don't go inside and buy Pepsi or a, a bag of peanuts or a um, your wife told you to bring home a pack of paper towels or something like that, they would probably be better off with you not stopping there. I mean, I'm serious. I mean, it's, it's a loss leader. If you go today and buy gas and put it on a Visa card and don't go inside that store and buy, you know, $10 worth of whatever, they're probably better off if you had not even stopped there. And, and these Facebook posts who say, you know, the convenience store owners are getting wealthy, uh, they may, but it ain't on gas. I can assure you of that. Dr. Scott Coppin is here, and I want to go back to something that, that you've um, written on extensively and studied extensively, and that is the, um, the, the this un, that's not unprecedented, but in, in my life it's unprecedented, this um, relationship that China and Russia appear to have, both formally and informally. February 5th, they met, and they signed a 5,000-word joint statement that is basically, um, it insinuates there is no forbidden areas of corporation. We're all in together. Uh, Putin signs it. Xi signs it. There are no limits to this pact. I'm of the opinion that those two countries perceive the Western world to be in decline. 
And because of that perception, they see an opportunity to be very ambitious in, here I go, been a bit of a of contrarian here uh, and a provocateur, replacing the United States as the preeminent superpower on the planet Earth. Am I crazy? We've actually seen some of this before. If we jump back to 1950, there was a Sino-Soviet pact, Treaty of Friendship signed. And the argument made by the Chinese and the Soviets at that time was that communism was on the rise, capitalism was on the decline, and that eventually capitalism would succumb to communism. Uh, within a decade, that pact was, was pretty much torn up. The Chinese had turned against the Soviets because they believed the Soviets were not providing them proper support. Uh, the Chinese leader, Mao Zedong, was furious with Nikita Khrushchev for denouncing Khrushchev's predecessor, Joseph Stalin. And in fact, things got so bad that in the late 1960s, uh, there was even talk of the Soviet of the Soviet. Well, actually, the Soviets approached the United States about attacking China. There were even skirmishes between China and the Soviet Union along their common border in 1969. So we've seen this happen, but we've seen that relationship fall apart. What we're seeing right now, no doubt, is this belief that the United States is perceived by the Chinese as a threat. Putin sees the United States and its allies as a threat. Uh, with China, we have, for instance, these disagreements over the South China Sea and U.S. support for Taiwan. And so we have this agreement. But there are indications underneath the surface that there are some, some tensions taking place here. Uh, for instance, uh, what I have read is that Xi Jinping, who was informed by Putin of this attack, that he was planning this attack before the Olympics, but waited until after they were over, expected this to be a quick operation. It's not. It has not been a quick operation. China had a, good, had a good trade relationship with the Ukraine. That is now taking a beating. That isn't making the Chinese very happy. Uh, and so underneath the surface, I do see these tensions taking place. So while they're talking about on the surface, oh, things are great, we're standing by one another, underneath the Chinese do have some concerns. And you add one more thing onto that, and that is the Chinese historically have supported the idea of territorial sovereignty and territorial integrity, and yet are watching the Soviets taking are trying to take over the Ukraine. That, too, is something the Chinese are a little bit wary so of. So how do you categorize this strategic threat? I mean, you would agree the relationship between Russia and China, I mean, if they both have declared uh, the United States the mortal enemy, the mortal foe, I mean, I understand we have trade relationships. I get that. I'm well aware of that. But, but how, how dangerous is this alignment to the prosperity and benefit of the United States of America? Well, I, mean, I, 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 get, I get the historical precedent. But, but when you look at America today, and we're $30 trillion in debt, we're deeply divided, the Western world is more confused now and inconsistent now in its political ideologies and beliefs than it ever has been, surely you would accept that this is a legitimate strategic threat to uh, us living in the American century. But the question would be, how would they act upon it? Would the Chinese, for instance, support the idea of the, of the Russians going to war against NATO? Probably not. Um, we also have to look at the fact that China is a major trading partner with the United States and vice versa, but a lot of it coming from China here. The Chinese certainly could hurt us. I mean, they could sell American bonds on, on the market. They could just go ahead and get rid of those bonds, that, that debt they owe us, but in, in the, and that would hurt us terribly financially, but the Chinese would take a beating as well. So the Chinese have reason to be wary. 
Um, yes, they are talking about this relationship with the Russians. Yes, they see the United States as a threat to their interests. But the Chinese are smart enough, I think they're smart enough to realize that while they could hurt us, they in the process would be terribly hurt as well. And I think they'd be very, very cautious about how far they would go. Did the Western world overplay its hand in not listening to Putin, insist that Ukraine remained uh, a non-member of NATO? I, I Personally, yes. I, I mean, in retrospect. Personally, think- yes. I mean, I was opposed to the idea from the very beginning of, of the Ukraine joining NATO. I don't understand. Did they what- provoke Putin? I don't think they provoked Putin. I mean, Putin had already engaged in provocative actions by taking over the next and the, uh, the other region, I can remember now, of, of eastern Ukraine and taking over the Crimea. And it was those attacks that led the Ukraine to ask for membership in NATO. Is it the Donbass region? Don- Donbass, thank you. And so that's what led the Ukraine to ask for membership in NATO. I don't like the idea of the Ukraine joining NATO. I think that that was uh, something that should not have been considered. I think there were other ways we could have supported the Ukraine outside of NATO, uh, such as maybe providing them with military aid, certainly economic aid, maybe have a relationship similar to that which we have t- with Taiwan today. But to to begin talking about allowing the Ukraine into NATO, which Putin sees as within his, within his sphere of influence, that definitely was, I think, a bad move. But I don't think, it, I don't think that it was that we provoked Putin. Putin had already engaged in the provocation. So from a scholarly perspective, as an academic, what is the perfect relationship between NATO and Eastern Europe? Well, one of, one of working, to, finding ways to negotiate conflicts with one another to avoid a situation like we have right now, uh, to look for common grounds, such as on energy. Um, there was even an offer by NATO to, for Russia to join it back during the Boris Yeltsin years, and Yeltsin said no. I don't know whether that would have made any difference, but uh, certainly trying to find a way to resolve these differences through negotiation rather than through military action. Does Putin deserve to not be intimidated nor threatened nor provoked by NATO? The, the, the issue I have there is Putin's mindset. Um, no leader is going to want to be provoked. The problem I have with Vladimir Putin is he's a strong man. He's a dictator. And I think it takes very little for him to believe that he is being threatened, uh, that it's a, not just not just his his country, but that he himself. I think he's someone who sees himself as a man's man and that any uh, any threat to Russia is a threat to his manhood uh, and that he therefore feels he has to stand up not only for his own for his country, but to prove himself a man, and that this, so it doesn't take very much at all for it to kick in that mindset. But does Putin represent or embody the average Russian? I mean, I do we know that? Do we have any idea what the average Russian thinks of invading Ukraine or the average Russian believes about its relationship with the Western world? Well, there are a couple of things we can throw in the mix there. When the, when the Russians overthrew, when the Russian people got rid of communism in the early 1990s and tried to move to a more democratic system, things did not go well. And you did have a large number of Russians who said, you know what, I, I actually like the days of Joseph Stalin. At the very least, I had a job, I had health care, I had all these things, even though I lived under dictatorship. Uh, it's proof that one of the difficulties with democracy is trying to establish it in a country that hasn't experienced it. Um, and so in a way, Putin, from my own reading, is a representation of that belief that, you know, maybe we need that strong man in power. The, but we did see in Russia 
a growing movement toward democracy. We did see uh, what Navalny, the, the opposition leader, coming out and speaking against Russia, uh, against Putin. We saw these independent journalists, independent news stations appearing, providing an alternative viewpoint. And what does Putin do? Instead of allowing that, he crushes these, these individuals. He even tries to poison them to, to kill them off. Um, the unfortunate thing is that he has actually won the support of the Russian people in the process because he's taken over the airwaves. Uh, polls coming out of Russia that I'm hearing about, and this is from people who actually can read Russian and seen the reports, 60% of Russians actually support what he's doing in the Ukraine. They believe when he says that we have to denazify and and But neutralize you would agree some of that's fear. I mean, you would have to agree some of that's fear-driven. Oh, sure. Some of it is. I mean, you but, speak but, out against Putin and you may end up, you know, being your last day on earth. But keep in mind, too, that control of the media, control of the message can have a powerful impact. Um this may tie into what you just said. I was watching CBS News this morning. There was a woman from the Ukraine. She's Russian in background, had fled, was texting her her brother who lives in Russia about what's happening in Ukraine. And his response is, I don't believe you. Because what we're hearing about is that the Ukrainians are the ones who are at fault. The Ukrainians are the ones who who, who caused this. And we're just protecting ourselves. Last question, and then we'll take our break. A couple of minutes here. Um what is the difference in what Putin did in Ukraine and what George W. Bush did in Iraq? <laughs> um, that's, that's an interesting question. Certainly, Americans would argue that what we were trying to do in Iraq was to get rid of a leader who had weapons of mass destruction, was probably going to use them. Did he? And Well, he didn't. Uh, and that we were trying to spread democracy, the Bush doctrine, spread democracy, or a Bush doctrine, spread democracy throughout the Middle East, uh, and that this would be beneficial to the United States. Um, Putin does not want to spread democracy. He wants to impose dictatorship. He wants to make sure that any kind of opposition to him is crushed. And so if there is a difference, that's the difference. But if you're talking about going into a war um, – Invading a sovereign nation. Invading a sovereign nation for questionable reasons. I mean, certainly there were many people in this country who questioned. I was certainly one of them who questioned why Bush went to Iraq. As much as I thought that Saddam Hussein was a terrible person who questioned this. And um, why Putin's doing this, I have a lot of problems with it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Very informative. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a second. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Karen in Florence. Hi, Karen. You're on the air. Okay. Um, I have a question, um, and, and it has to do with uh, cutting off the oil to or our money to Russia. And I heard that we're trying to look at making deals with Iran and the Saudis and Venezuela for um, oil and gas. How is that going to help cut off money to Russia? Because I would think, that um, some of that, the monies, if we make deals with them, would be back channels back into Russia because these countries are not necessarily um, friendly to us, especially, I would say, Iran and Venezuela. Looking at Maduro and back behind him, you know, the Chavez um, legacy. I, I don't get that. Nor, nor do I. Think- well, I mean, Scott was talking about it would take so much longer for Keystone to be productive. He's right. But fracking could put a lot of energy production back online sooner than later. There's word out of Washington that President Biden may go 
to Saudi Arabia, try to patch up some of the relationship with the crown prince. Um, the, the Saudis and the UAE, from what I've read, and I've read some of these things in the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, CNBC, and some other places, they appear to be the only OPEC members with spare capacity. They could produce more. Saudi Arabia, for whatever reason, always has the ability to produce more. I mean, they can rig the market. I mean, the Saudis are, and the UAE to some degree, uh, but the Saudis in particular, um, for whatever reason, oil is easy to get out of the ground in Saudi Arabia. I mean, I don't understand the technology. We talk about fracking, when fracking's profitable, when some of the hydro fracking is profitable, um, how much does it cost to get oil out of the ground in Pennsylvania or Texas or, or Oklahoma? I, you know, th- there's varying numbers there, but nobody can compete with the Middle East, Saudi Arabia in particular. But, but when Putin's reached out to the UAE or Saudi Arabia about increasing capacity or increasing production, they don't want to alienate themselves from Putin. Saudi Arabia is not America's friend. The Middle East is not our friend. We have a transactional relationship with, with most of the world. But, but the Western world is our ally. Now, now we, can, we can argue with Germany and France and Greece and, and Italy, but they share a similar set of values. It's different in the Middle East. So when, when Biden goes to Saudi Arabia and pleads for them to increase production, they're not going to do it because they don't want to alienate, alienate Putin. I mean, he's a power broker in all of this. He's in the energy business, and he wants more and more leverage. How does he get more and more leverage? He produces more and more energy. So the only answer here, in my humble opinion, is to encourage U.S. energy production. I mean, that, that is the answer here. We can argue about the border dispute. And did, 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 did NATO provoke Putin by not telling Ukraine you can't be in this transnational organization? I mean, those are conversations I'll never be privileged to. Everything I say is complete and total speculation. But this year, we will import more energy than we export. During the Trump administration, we did just the opposite. We exported more energy than we produced. Excuse me, we exported excess energy because we didn't use it as consumers. Now, now somebody said earlier this morning, it might have been Rick earlier, just because Exxon increases production doesn't mean it's exclusively for America. I mean, Exxon's not a state-run oil entity. Exxon is in the marketplace. If people in Russia or Germany or France or wherever are willing to pay more for a a barrel of oil than Americans are, that's the way the, the free market works. But, but you know, the, the only answer to this, and I'm talking about the energy play, I don't know the answer to thousands of years of Eastern European culture and history. I mean, I can't fathom what it's going to take for, for peace to reign in that part of the world. Is Putin, uh, is Putin a dictator on the march? In other words, does he have his eye on Hungary or Poland? I don't know. I don't have any idea. You don't either. I mean, you may read these things. You may think these things. You may um, be told these things, but nobody is in the head of Vladimir Putin. Nobody knows what Putin's end game is, but I do know this today. The reason we're paying $4 a gallon for gasoline is the Biden administration chose to not be as productive energy, or as productive an energy uh, country as we can be. So, so what we can do today is encourage U.S. energy production now and they don't seem to have that on the well, table I mean, why is he going to saudi arabia 
Are you going to so so the American president is going to Saudi Arabia to encourage them to produce more instead of permitting and undoing some of the all he had to do was adopt the Trump policy. Instead of adopting the Trump policy on energy, Biden's going to Saudi Arabia to beg the crown prince to produce a little more. That makes no sense. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number last hour of the day. So you posed this interesting question to Dr. Kaufman last hour about, uh, you know, what is the difference between what Putin has done in Ukraine versus what George W. Bush did in Iraq? Just on its surface, I guess if you say, you know, if the complaint is uh, he invaded a sovereign nation for whatever reason, you know, is that, can that be equated to what the United States did in Iraq? Well, I mean, I understand. Is there any equivalence there? Well, I mean, it, is that what you're saying well, I mean, or asking? The, the argument has been Vladimir Putin invaded a sovereign nation. George W. Bush invaded a sovereign nation. I understand preserving the Western world. I understand, you know, Vladimir Putin's a bad guy. We're told in the West that Putin's a bad guy. He's a ruthless dictator. We were told the same thing about Saddam Hussein in different sorts of ways, but same characteristics. Here's the point about the the American invasion of Iraq. Did we cook the books? Did we intentionally mislead the American public into believing Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction? I mean, I think he at some point in time did. I mean, I think that's fairly well provable that at some point in time yeah, in his we reign, think he used them against terror, his own people. Well, I mean, and so, so to use them against his own people means he had them. But, but the argument was made, what was the axis of evil? I mean, the argument was that at the time of us considering whether or not to overthrow the Saddam Hussein regime, he had weapons of mass destruction, and it turned to be untrue. So, so if you've got, I mean, if I had COVID a year ago, I don't have it now. So the point I'm trying to make is, yes, that there are great similarities in a, a Western country invading a sovereign nation, but but a, a communist regime invading a sovereign nation. I'm not making a moral equivalency here. I'm just saying we talk out both sides of our mouth very often because we believe one cowboy has the black hat on and the other cowboy has the white hat on. And the argument I'd make about the American government today, be very careful believing that the American government is the cavalry. Be very skeptical of believing that the American government is riding the white horse. I'm sorry. I mean, that's where I've landed. And as an American citizen, I wish I did have full faith in my federal government. I have very little faith in my federal government. Do I believe the American government could have easily misled the American people about what Saddam had or did not have? Of course I do. Do I like admitting that? No, absolutely not. But but yeah, I mean, there, there are great similarities in what we did and what we've accused Saddam Hussein, excuse me, uh, Vladimir Putin of doing. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, so, Ken, anyone who studies the American political left knows that they want expensive energy. You know, Obama made it clear that he wanted to shut down the coal industry, if I remember correctly, and Hillary made comments and Biden shut down the pipeline and closing the pipeline raised oil prices, not because it was going to be online anytime soon, but because shutting it that oil is so speculative. So shutting it down sent a message that we were now anti-oil. So the question is, why does the American political left 
want expensive energy. You know, they'll claim on the surface it's for the environment, so it forces us to switch to um, renewable resources. But that's they're saying that all while flying around in private jets. Um, and and so stateside, the war in Ukraine isn't about democracy or sovereignty. It's a stateside. It's about the American working class. So when you put these two things together, I really really believe this is about further destroying the American working class. I, I don't know why. Um, I asked you a couple of months ago if they were trying to provoke us into doing something we ought not do. So are they trying to provoke us into doing something to gain more power? Um, you know, look at what Trudeau did with the truckers. And I think, was it 2013? Trudeau said he was envious of china and the way they could do things at the drop of a hat because they were a communist country um with these dictatorship style um, authorities um there's there's more at play here and, and that is and it's not about gas prices it's really and truly about us um you know we see how january 6 played out um yeah so i guess the question at the end of the day is after the midterms, if the midterms don't turn out like we think they should turn out, if 2024 doesn't turn out like we think we should, it should, where do we go from there? Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. The, the Democrats' dilemma is, yeah, I mean, the Democrats want high energy prices because they want to force us to renewables, force us to the new Green Deal. The problem is it's hard to win elections when gas is $4 a gallon. So the Democrats, it's a little bit like the conservative Republican that wants to reform entitlements. The, the dilemma he has on his hands is, okay, I'm going to give this campaign speech, and I'm going to tell everybody over the age of 50 that we're not going to honor the deal we made with you on Medicare and Social Security. Good luck with that. The, in, in a similar fashion, the Democrats have a big problem in uh, the, the ambitions of green energy, renewable energy, and the realities of energy costs now. What does it cost to heat my home now? What does it cost to drive my SUV down the road for you know 22.5 miles now? You know, in a weird way, when you really think of it this way, I thought about this yesterday, riding down the road looking at gas prices. Um, is $4 a lot of money to propel a 5,000, 6,000-pound vehicle down the road for 23 miles? I mean, I, mean, I, I get where we all are. I mean, I, I'm as bothered as you are by having to spend 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, $120 to fill up an SUV or truck or car with fuel. But but, but by modern standards, pushing something down the road, propelling something down the road that weighs 6,000 pounds, 22.5 miles for four bucks. Is that really outrageous? <laughs> I like it better when you do it for two bucks. Well, I mean, I, I get that. I, but I you, see what you you're see saying there. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm talking about in, in, in modern America. I mean, is that is that such an extravagant price? To, 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 once again, propel something down a road. But but the point Jim's making is really reflective in the rally. Let, let me give you a couple of talking points here. Um, I'm getting texts this morning from people within the GOP. We've had a phone call here from the GOP. I've got a couple of texts from yesterday from a GOP candidate running for office. Do you believe the GOP is departing of the American working class? Because the event this weekend, if we're not careful, and I'm talking about the Trump rally in Florence, it's a Save America political action committee event. 
Donald Trump has endorsed two candidates running against fellow Republicans in primaries in our great state. One voted to impeach Donald Trump. But but the, the Republican Party in South Carolina are trying to make it appear this is a GOP event when it's not. It's simply not. Trump ran as a Republican. Russell Fry is running as a Republican. Katie Arrington is running as a Republican. So there's a consolidation of energy there. But in all honesty, and I think Jim talks more about this than any caller we have, is the Republican Party truly a party that represents the interest of the American working class? Because that's all that motivates me. We, we, we touched on something yesterday. Let me give you a, a kind of an interesting number here, and then we can go down the road as far as this as you want to go. Uh, we talked a little bit yesterday about the Fed balance sheet, you know, asset purchases, and, and then we talked about housing and some of the realities in the housing market today. Um, there's a rule of thumb in finance, government, banking. Um, you're to spend about 28% of your gross income on your mortgage payment. I mean, some spend a little more, some spend much less, but that's kind of the rule of thumb that your mortgage payment is not to exceed 28% of your gross income, monthly income, monthly house payment. Over the last 50 years, we've averaged somewhere between 650 and 700,000 homes that a family making between seventy-five dollars and $100,000 could afford, applying that same 28% rule of thumb, um, you know, banking reality. So, so for 50 years, the working class, the family earning seventy-five to 100000 as a household, had about six hundred fifty to 700,000 houses to choose from. You know what the inventory in America is today? About 200,000. Mm. Mean, the, 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 the American working class has nobody pitching its wares, no, nobody selling its, 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 its agenda, nobody um, doing the lifting on behalf of them. Um, when, when gas goes up, the people who invest in Exxon do extremely well. The people who work at Exxon do extremely well. Uh, the investing class does extremely well. I mean, yeah, you give some of that back at a, ga- at a tank of gas, but the American working class takes it on the chin. And, and, and the American working class is easily dismissed because they don't have any influence. They don't have a lobby. They don't own much of the stock market. The Fed balance sheet. I mean, I just talked about housing a second ago. The Fed balance sheet is very similar to that. Um, the Fed balance sheet today is about $9.25 trillion. About five of that is quantitative easing. You know what quantitative easing does? It means you purchase assets. You know how you purchase the assets? You electronically create money. I mean, is, the American, is that for the American working class or, or is that for the investor class? You know the answer as good as I do. It's for the investor class. I mean, you may do okay. Your, your 401k may go from uh, 120000 to 135000 What happens at Goldman? What happens at BlackRock? What happens at J.P. Morgan? What happens to the asset managers all up and down Wall Street? What happens at K Street and Washington, defense contractors, and, and, and some of these um, international oil companies? The American working class has no representation, and most of us don't have to care about it. Don't have to be bothered by that. I can't help it. I mean, I grew up in a town with no stoplight. Those are the people that had such an impact and effect on my life. And I get emotional when I realize how royally they've been screwed. 
I mean, if you are an American household making between seventy-five and hundred thousand dollars, or somewhere south of a hundred thousand, I mean, your, your government care could care less about you. And the proof is in the pudding. What they've done, once again, the housing market. Do you believe cheap interest rates are a um, a way for someone making seventy-five thousand dollars to be a homeowner? Or do you believe it's to add value to the capital markets where asset managers can make, you know, $25 million a year instead of $20 million a year? I mean, you know the reason they have the political clout. Our, our government has been sold to the highest bidder. And when you sell to the highest bidder, guess who wins? The highest bidder. Guess who the highest bidder normally is? The people with the most money. So, so it goes back to something Larry said a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about, you know, the government... When the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, it became a free-for-all. And the hyper-capitalists, the thugs, won out. There's an iron business that was state-run. There's a gas business, an oil business, a lithium business, a titanium business, a limestone business. All of those abundant natural resources in Russia and Eastern Europe, and it's up for grabs. The state, Russia, doesn't run it anymore. So, the you know, the and, and that's where you get oligarchs. It's the same thing in America. I mean, it's pretty much the same thing in America. We didn't dissolve. We didn't fall apart. But over an extended period of time, our political leadership decided to sell our government to the highest bidder. So when you look at the Fed balance sheet and you say they got $9.25 trillion and about uh, $5 trillion, $4.5 to $5 trillion is what they call quantitative easing. And all quantitative easing means is that we don't have to have money to buy what we want to buy. We can electronically create the money. So when you electronically create four and a half, five trillion dollars, I think we've done about six or seven trillion during the pandemic. And and they send somebody a check for, you know, a child credit check or a worker benefit check. I mean, do, do we really believe that that proportionally the working class is benefiting in a way? And and then the reason America first has reared its head, the reason Save America has such support is the American public are beginning to, to, to understand this. They don't know what to do about it. They don't have any political clout. Uh, most don't have any means. That They're kind of hardworking people. They pay their bills. They do their thing. They raise their family. They're God-fearing. They're honest. They're decent. They're hardworking. But your government sold you down the river. And Donald Trump touched a nerve and created a political movement. So I can assure you of this. If I invest any energy in the American political system in an official way, it'll be a part of America first. It'll be in support of America first because whether or not they mean it, they're at least giving lip service to one of the great travesties in the history of this country, and that is the American working class being abused by the American political class. Back in a minute. 843 You know, it's easy to say, I don't care what happens in Ukraine. I don't care what happens in Russia. It doesn't affect me or my life, the way I conduct my family's affairs until it uh, kind of disrupts the flow of energy. And we know how important that is uh, in $100 all of our to fill up your tank. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I filled up last night and it normally takes, I got a little small compact pickup, takes me about 32 or 3 or $4, $62 um, yesterday. And I think it was three eighty nine a gallon. And we're one of the low-tax states here right. in the Deep South. Hey, Jeff, Fox News' Jeff Manasso is with us. He's in Chicago. So, Jeff, um, gas prices in the country are skyrocketing. Um, is there any relief in, on the way? Is there something um, we could be optimistic about in the not-too-distant future? 
Yeah, I'm not sure. I, 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 we're not hearing it uh, as of yet. So the price for a gallon of gas now has never been higher in our nation's history, $4.11 per gallon on average. And that actually may have gone up since, uh, since I wrote this. Uh, or, or since it was been reported uh, overnight uh, at, at 411, according to AAA, and with the state of California, uh, you've seen those prices over over seven bucks a gallon uh, at some stations uh, in California, and it's just in from the Biden administration. The AP says that uh, they will be banning Russian oil imports, and and so more details will will come out of that soon. But that was pressure not just by Republicans, but by Democrats as well. Val Demings, Florida, Nancy Pelosi, and others that said, look, we cannot we not, cannot continue buying oil from Russia when it's being used to fund their invasion in Ukraine. And so it's a small percentage of oil that we get from Russia, but it's enough for uh, oil prices to likely tick up unless we see some sort of relief in, in, in other places. Remember, prices... We're already up about a dollar ten uh, in a year since President Biden took office. Uh, they skyrocketed even higher because of this Russian-Ukraine crisis. Um, and 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 so, I mean, truckers, they're, they're, there's diesel fuel about four sixty-three per gallon now, uh, on average. Uh, the the uh, the national average saw its largest ever seven-day spike, fifty cents per gallon, from this time last week, and that's never ever happened before. Uh, and so the White House has been pressed by by reporters saying, look, is the president going to scrap the executive order that he, he signed on day one of taking office that canceled President Trump's energy independence policies, the Keystone Pipeline, uh, suspending oil and gas leases? Uh, and the messaging from the White House is basically this, that the pain at the pump, home heating, uh, other energy costs, gas prices is a necessary one to wean us off of fossil fuels. That same message yesterday from the VP, the same message from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who spent yesterday promoting electric cars. And others argue that, look, if you can't afford high gas prices, you might not be able to afford a fifty dollars to $100,000 electric car. This is so interesting, Jeff. As you were speaking, I'm, I've got it on CNBC here, kind of a, uh, a competitor, but someone who keeps up with the financial markets fairly well. Um, since the announcement that crude oil was going to be banned and Russian import crude oil was going to be uh, embargoed, gas is up another seven and a half cent overnight. So um, uh, the news keeps getting worse as it relates to the, uh, I don't know, the average traveler, the person getting from point A to point B. But I want to go back to something you said a second ago. Is there any stated timelines when it comes to renewable energy. So, I mean, we hear a lot of campaign speeches and Biden said certain things on the campaign trail, but I've not heard any sort of definite time period when we could potentially wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. Has Buttigieg commented anything to that? Has anybody in the administration said that if we'll stick to our guns, if, if you'll kind of hang in there with me by December of 20, you know, 27, we could uh, be completely driving electric cars and renewable energies will be uh, more in vogue than they are. No, I mean, the infrastructure is not there for, for, for us to switch to electric cars overnight. And uh, there's not enough electric cars. There's not enough money to pay for it because people don't have that, that kind of cash to, uh, to be able to shell out for an electric car in this country. Now, Biden, during the State of the Union speech, talked about how he wants Congress to uh, uh, you know, give, implement some sort of incentives to for for people buying electric cars, but um, 
that hasn't happened yet. And, and, you know, this, this isn't just like a, a, it's not like a switch that you can just switch on. Um, opponents would argue that it would be quicker to be, to be able to be, to become a little bit more energy independent uh, in this nation while we work things out, while the crisis is happening. Uh, and, and, and then we can work on being, uh, you know, green and, and more environmentally friendly. Uh, but uh, that's, uh, you know, that's also not an easy fix either. And so uh, we're, we're kind of stuck. So, so the, the, the short answer is no, there is no timeline. There is no, there, there is no set uh, amount of time where people can, uh, where, where, where D.C. can say, look, we're going to do this. And by this time, we're going we're gonna to be, you know, it's all going to be well and good. And we can start focusing on other issues. Um, there, there, there's, there's nothing there. Uh, it's, it's the, it's the messaging that we're hearing from the White House and others that says, look, we need to stop relying on, on fossil fuels. We need to wean ourselves off of gas, and we need to, uh, we need to be buying and driving more electric cars. But, you know, to a lot of people in this country, that doesn't really make any sense because it's, it's not, it's not a viable option. Uh, it's not going to happen immediately. Um, and and the latest polling shows that uh, uh, the the latest Monday morning con- con- uh, con- consult poll shows that one in three Americans are driving less because of the high prices. The latest Rasmussen poll also shows about 70 percent of likely U.S. voters believe that the federal government should encourage increased oil and gas production here to reduce America's dependence on, on foreign sources of oil. This as the White House sent a team down to talk to Maduro in, uh, in Venezuela. Uh, he's not a friend of the U.S., but apparently we're, we're, looking, uh, we're, we're also looking at Saudi to produce more oil for us. So we're, we're, we're depending on these other nations. Uh, when Republicans argue we've got the resources right here. Uh, and, and, and so um, the White House seems to shift on, on uh, the political winds and political opinions, it's probably why they're shifting on on uh, reducing oil imports from from Russia. Now that you've got Democrats screaming at them, um, perhaps when the pain of the pump gets too much, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where that threshold is. I mean, I think for some, it's already passed. Yeah. But but you know, this nation as a whole, I don't know what that is. And, and uh, perhaps when we get there, maybe the, the political winds will shift and they'll they'll start drilling a little bit more. I don't, I don't know, but I don't see a light at the end of the end of the tunnel being reported on on any network or any news reporting today. Jeff, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. You bet. And I want to say this: you know, it's it's fun to theorize, and it's fun to hypothesize, and it's fun uh, to, to kind of you know have academic exercises on whatever it is we're talking about. You know, hey, let's sit down in a classroom and let's simulate an economy that includes Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine and us deciding to um, to ban Russian imports of oil. Yeah, let's do that. Let's see how that plays itself out. This is the real world. This is not an academic exercise. This is not hypothesizing nor theorizing about what may or may not be. I mean, this is a country that has the ability to produce enough energy to not depend on Saudi Arabia or Vladimir Putin, and we choose not to. Let that sink in for a second. I mean, this is not the editorial board at the New York Times or the editor-in-chief at the Washington Post or, or the, the 25-year-old recently college-educated reporter from the Wall Street Journal. This is someone who lives in the real world, understands with clarity the real world. We have the ability to produce energy for our consumption, and we're choosing not to. 
And I'm tired of hearing liberals say, well, it would take this long for this to happen. It would take that long for that to happen. When Donald Trump was our president, we exported oil because we produced more than we needed for our own consumption. Something has to change. The American people are being taken advantage of by a bunch of political theorists who have this pie-in-the-sky dream uh, of, of um, a, a, a world that doesn't include fossil fuels, a utopian world that doesn't include fossil fuels, and a guy that was running for president of the United States about a year and a half ago told you, the American public, that he was declaring war on fossil fuel and your dumbass voted for him. I mean, I'm sorry, but this is insane what we're allowing to happen to this country, to its working class. If you're making a million bucks a year on Wall Street, you could care less what gasoline costs. If you're John Kerry uh, sporting around the world in a private jet, you don't care what gasoline costs. Al Gore doesn't care what gasoline costs. Bill Gates could care less what the price of a gallon of gasoline. These green theorists are killing the American working class, really and truly the working class all over the world who live paycheck to paycheck. They're demonstrating with clarity they could care less about you and your plight in life. So if a single member of the American working class or naive or stupid enough to vote for a Democrat in 2022, you'll get exactly what you deserve. Let's go to the phone. Here's Connie in Florence. Good morning, Connie. Hey, good morning. And thank you, as always, for, for the conversation and information and, and the way you just get it out here to us. We really appreciate it. And uh, I, I I feel like a cheerleader because I've been sitting here waiting saying, yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> um, and And I've been blessed to have worked in different areas. Right out of college, I went to work for Duke Power Company. Um, at, years later, I went back into the hospitals and did health care, x-ray and nuclear medicine. When I burned out on that, I wound up selling pipe to these same people. I sold the pipe to redo the whole um, Florida power and light system a couple of years ago before I retired. Um, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, because all I've been exposed to over my life and being blessed with common sense and good parents, that we do it better here. So the gas we're buying from these other countries, these these lying, liberal, green jerks, I'm trying to clean up my language for you, <laughs> but but they we do it better Plus, you can't twinkle your nose and get that gas over here. You're going to have to ship it here. There's more greenhouse gases or whatever they want to call it. Uh, you're getting it made by people who don't follow our standards. So you're getting more exhaust and poison into the air. There's just so much right about the way we do things. And and it's just impossible that people are, like you said, that damn stupid. You know, we do it better. We do it for a better price. And we need to tell all them to, we need to bend over and show them where to kiss. Thank because- you, Connie. Appreciate that. I, I want to say this. Um, thank you for the call. Appreciate that. Um, so, so what Biden has decided 
is let's buy oil from a dictator who didn't invade a sovereign nation. It's still a dictator. I mean, Saudi Arabia is still a dictatorship. It's more religiously based. I mean, it's less totalitarian. Us is equally totalitarian. It's less secular. There you go. It's more about um, religion and Islam and fanatical Islam and an adherence to certain Sharia law and Muslim faith code. But, I mean, just imagine this, guys. I mean, imagine a president of the United States that, that basically, and I said it a few weeks back, and I kind of thought I was being more provocative than my audience may have deserved when I said, and I quote, went back and looked at some of the notes I wrote. This is, I don't know, a month or so ago when I said that Joe Biden and his administration have um, declared that domestic energy production is more dangerous than Russia or China. I mean, I said that to be a bit provocative because I, I could imagine a liberal or a leftist saying, oh, that's that nut on the radio. You know how he and uh, all those other radio show hosts are, Tucker Carlson and, you know, the late Rush Limbaugh, but they always try to stir the people up and, and say things to provoke and, and generate a response. And it's, someone tell me I'm wrong. I mean, we're, we're talking to Maduro now. We're, we're talking to the prince in uh, the royal prince of Saudi Arabia now. Saudi Arabia is about the only country in the world today that has excess capacity. I mean, they're incredibly fortunate. I mean, that, that's how they, you know, the Saudi princes, uh, Boeing. I mean, I read the other day where um, of all their Dreamliner orders, and, and I'm talking about the private orders. I'm not talking about commercial air travel. I'm talking about private orders. About half were from the Middle East. And it's, it's, it's oil money. It's, it's these um, families that basically have bullied. They would be hyper-capitalist in our world. Um, they've ended up with all the, uh, the the control of the gold and the revenue that goes along with that. They run the countries as they see fit. So so not only are we having the exact same carbon footprint, we're not changing that. We're just dealing with a dictator who's not invading a sovereign nation right now. Now, we're dealing with a dictator cut at a reporter from Washington Post to shreds. But, I mean, that's old news. Who's worried about that? Make our own energy. If we are going to be and maintain our status and deserve to maintain our status as the preeminent superpower in the world, we've got to be able to make decisions like energy production when when someone throws us a curveball. Let's pursue green energy. Let's romance about renewable energy. Let's pull for Elon Musk. Let's try to wean ourselves off some, uh, Middle Eastern oil or, or Russian oil or, or, you know, wherever. I mean, let, let's do business with friendlies if we can. But let's be realistic about it. Let's not be naive and gullible and presumptive. I mean, it, it's, it's absurd that we believe we're almost there when it comes to weaning ourselves off fossil fuel. Joe Biden said in a speech running for president of the United States, and I, let's do that. Let, let, let's take a break now. I want Rev to try to find that because Trump says, and I quote, that's a, that's a big statement, Joe. I mean, that, that's a big statement. Joe Biden basically says we're going to declare war on fossil fuel companies, the energy companies that have abused the American. Who's abusing you now? Do you feel abused by Putin? Do you feel abused by Exxon, BP, Shale? Or do you feel abused by your federal government that we the people elect to be in charge? Back in a minute. Of gasoline. Remember Vice that. President Biden, your response, and then we're going to have a final question for both of you. My response is that those people live on what they call fence lines. He doesn't understand this. They live near chemical plants that, in fact, pollute chemical plants and oil plants and refineries that pollute. 
I used to live near that when I was growing up in Claymont, Delaware. And all the more oil refineries in Marcus Hook and the Delaware River than there is any place, including in Houston at the time. When my mom get in the car and when, when there were first frost to drive me to school, turn in the windshield, wiper, there'd be oil slick in the window. That's why so many people in my state were dying and getting cancer. The fact is those frontline communities, it doesn't matter what you're paying them. It matters how you keep them safe. What do you do? And you impose restrictions on the pollutions that it, the pollutants coming out of those fence line communities. Okay, I have one final would question. Would he close it down falls, the oil industry? It falls, would you close down the oil industry? By the way, I would transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I would that's transition. a big statement. Thank it you. is a big statement. That's a because big statement. I would stop. Why would you do that? Because the oil industry pollutes significantly. Oh, I see. And here's the deal. But that's you can't a big do statement. That. Well, if you let me finish the statement, because it has to be replaced by renewable energy over time, over time. And I'd stop giving to the oil industry, I'd stop giving them federal subsidies. He won't give federal subsidies to the to the gas, excuse me, to the to uh, solar and wind. Yeah. Why are we giving it to oil industry? We actually do All give right. it to solar and wind. We and have that's one maybe final the biggest question. statement in terms of business. That's the biggest statement. Okay. Because basically what he's saying question, is he is Mr. going President. to destroy the oil industry. Okay. Will you remember that, Texas? Will you okay. remember that, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma? Vice President Biden, let me give you 10 seconds to respond, Ohio. and then I have to get to the final question. Vice President Biden. He takes everything out of context, but the point is, look, we have to move toward a net zero emissions. The first place to do that by the year 2035 is in energy okay. production, by 2050, totally. All right. One is he going to get China to do it? No, we're finished with is this. Is he going we have to, to get move China on to, to our do final it? question? No, we have to I'm move on to our final question. I'm going to rejoin Paris Accord and make oh. China abide by what they agreed to. All right. This is about leadership, gentlemen. And I mean, there's one guy who lives in Realville and another who doesn't. I mean, there, there's a guy in the White House today who believes some of the academic exercises that have taken place uh, preceding his arrival. I mean, if the New York Times says it, it must be true. If Harvard School of Government says it, it must come to fruition. Trump lives in the real world. That's called the business guy. The business guy does not have the luxury of appointing a blue ribbon committee or, or an accord or a pack or a treaty. He's got to get things done. She's got to get things done. Joe Biden has never lived in a world of accountability. So when Joe Biden hypothesizes about these sorts of things, there's never been any consequence to being wrong. Trump's been wrong a lot. I mean, he's got a financial record that shows that. He succeeds and he fails, but the real world holds him accountable. Joe Biden lives in a world where, where there is no accountability. And you, the American consumer and the American taxpayer, the American voter, are getting your butts handed to you every time you fill up your car with gas. Let's go to the phone. John in Lamar. Hello, John. You're on. Hey, guys. Good morning. Um, you know, there's something that I, I made a mess, but uh, I don't seem to recall anybody talking about it. You know, uh, with all this stuff going on in Russia and Ukraine and the oil, um, you know, all the very elite politicians and business people and stuff like that are heavily invested in oil and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I believe, personally, I believe that uh, our, our, the Democrat government that we have in place today He's really lying in their pockets right now. We know Biden and Hunter and all them are, are heavily invested in Ukraine and, and the energy sector and all that. Um, and I believe they're really lying in their pockets today to spend some poor people who are out here working for a living. Um, 
And also, you know, when gas gets $7 a gallon, all they got to do in November is say, well, you know, it's all because of Russia. We didn't do it. It's all because of Russia. You know, uh, I got an argument yesterday with a fellow that said, we you know, Putin and, and, and uh, Trump were best buddies. You know, Trump should go there and live with him. I mean, what the hell are you talking about? You know what I mean? Damn, it was a dollar eighty-nine cents a gallon. That's four four nineteen down the street from it. And you know, it doesn't make any sense that, that everybody's buying into this. But you know, it's all what they're going to do, and they're for, they're, they're trying to force you into electric cars and, and green energy. Well, and, and uh, John, we got one more call, and I want to get to the next call before we get out of here. But I mean, it, it, if the American people are that unserious, it will work. They will force us d- down a road that we um, that may or may not make sense. We've got to be a more serious people, more dedicated to understanding the world that we live in. Let's go to the phone. Sam calling from Darlington. Hi, Sam. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, fellas. Um, uh, Ken, I agree with you. I, I feel abused by every one of those uh, folks that you've mentioned uh, earlier. But uh, one of the things uh, I'm going to bring to our everybody's attention is let's not also lose sight that we're right on the verge of perhaps getting back in that Iran nuclear uh, deal. And so my question, and this is for maybe another discussion, is is this not a treaty situation again that would require uh, the action of the Senate before it got ratified, calling for a 60 uh, majority vote? would be interested in hearing what you think about that, Ken, because I think the first go around, that was an issue that was raised. Mm-hmm. Republicans never really, really uh, did much with that. And now it's another time for Lindsey Graham and the Republicans to step up and challenge this thing on a, on a treaty, on the treaty basis. That's interesting. Legislatively, yeah, legislatively challenge this. Force it down the proper channel. I mean, make senators vote and go on the record as to what they're choosing or choosing not to do in the grand nuclear deal. I'll try to do a little digging and have you a better answer tomorrow. we got to get out of here. We'll be back in just a second to say goodbye. Hey, most Americans don't know as much as we probably need to about Ukraine and Russia, but we know when gas is $4 a gallon, that gets our attention. We'll yeah, talk tomorrow. No doubt. Stay safe.